We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This is the Gator Nation Football Podcast with your hosts, Alan Williams and James DiVirgilio. This place is an insane asylum in the swamp! Oh my! Now we know we're just a bunch of average stiffs. Scared money don't make money, you know? Welcome into the Gator Nation Football Podcast. It is Florida Georgia Week. I'm your host, James DiVirgilio, alongside Alan Williams. We hope you enjoyed the bye. Alan, how was your bye week? It was lovely. I had a great time. It's funny what no Gator football game does. It opens up your weekend there a little bit. But watching college football is fun. But it's you know it is always better with a Gator game. It is always better. I was playing in a beach volleyball tournament in St. Pete, sort of something I do every three years with a friend of mine who's who's big into that scene. And I was watching college game day on the beach and then playing a game and then watching other games on the beach and thinking it's it's different to not have like your Saturday entirely necessarily dedicated to football like you would at a home game mm-hmm. here in Gainesville. And for most of the world, I find myself looking around at the people at the beach and, and judging them. <laughs> Like these people aren't even checking their phones. They don't even know what's happening in the world around them. Like how are they living? What is wrong with you? And so, of course, you really recognize the world's much bigger than just us college football fans. But here on the GNFP and for most of you listeners, your world is like our world where football in the fall is an awesome pastime and a really fun activity. And this week, of course, a very special week. It's been more painful, Alan, than we'd like it to be. For a while, it was just a week where we beat Georgia, almost Mm. guaranteed. We'd be in the stadium. I was in the stadium for most of my formative years as a Florida fan, uh, chanting out the years with which we'd beat them in a row every single season. And it was just, like, great. And now it's totally flipped. And, uh, you know, we're hunting, obviously, for an upset this week. But a lot of good stuff to cover. Before we get to that, as always, if you like the content on this podcast, follow us on social media. Sub to our film review channel on YouTube. Become a patron on Patreon, where you can drop us a dono, what we call a donation to support our efforts to bring you this type of content all throughout the year. And as always, shout out to our terrific volunteer baller helpers. B-Red, the producer of this program, and Carly, the commissioner, the video editor, and czar of the Film Review channel. So thank you to both of you each and every week. You make things what they are here on the pod. If you have not yet and you want to, join the GNFP Sammy and the GNFP Java Discord for your weekly football chats. And check out our merch, where, of course, you can get the latest gear 
from the pod. Alan, a couple of new donors here in the small dono category, with both of them with notable names. Yeah, it's fun ones. Yeah, we've got Smelly Ellie. Okay, fair enough. Smelly Ellie, welcome aboard. And then we have Dirkheiser FGBM. I really want to know what FGBM stands for. Yeah, I'm very curious too. So hit us up there, Dirk Heiser, and let us know. But welcome to the GNFP patron family and still sitting on the throne. This might be the longest run since Alexander Leventhal in season. In season. Now, Leventhal had it for a while. And then Ridge had a long one. But like just to start a year with like no real tumultuous challenges. And and James Ridge survived multiple challenges. Leventhal survived lots of challenges. I mean, there were significant behind-the-scenes challenges going on. But... Cooper and Carly Craig have yet to even been remotely challenged. They're just cruising along, enjoying their time. The and, uh, and Florida, Queen. yeah, Florida, perhaps ascending under their reign. All right, how about our Dono legends? Let's do it. James Ridge, Barry Jenkins, Guy Tumbleson, Jason Walker, The Big Homie, Lil Peyton, Constantine Double O, Alexander Leventhal, Diego Rivera, Bill Hood, James Newton, Nathan Jeter, Stashmi, Bob Boucher, Frank Marcellisi, Mike Wechter, Tim Kane, Nicholas Isaac, Mike, Mark Jackson, Tim Hondrick, James Truett, Gus O'Leary, Brad Wilson, Mark Mitchell, Chris Folsom, Dr. Matthew Galloway, Jamie Galliano, Aaron Jeter, Jason Landry, Michael Reeves, Jason Johnson, Zach Sparks, Mark Rubenstein, Tyler Rummery, Craig Scarado, Alan Horn, Sidney Singleton, Kristen Moody, David Sugar, Percy Harvin, baby, and the man himself, Doug D. Virgilio. You know, that's funny. Thinking about this list is so many people are such early supporters of the pod. So I think that's a reflection of why they're all in there. So thank you guys for being in there from the ground floor, a lot of you. Florida controls its own destiny to win the SEC East. That is a true fact that I'm reading out to you right now. Along with Missouri, true fact, and Georgia. So there you go. Those are the three schools that control their destiny. Florida, of course, played both of them here very soon. Uh, but yeah, would you have guessed that before the season? I definitely wouldn't have put Missouri in that category. Uh, but yeah, Florida controlling its own destiny, I think, is interesting the way the year has gone. I, I think if you, I, I'm not, I wouldn't be super shocked by it, considering a lot of those games were coin flippy, and one of those was Utah, which doesn't account in this exchange at all. But all those games were winnable, many of them losable. So the fact that you have the win over Tennessee obviously is significant in there. But so on one hand, it feels weird considering our expectations for Florida. But looking at the first half of the schedule, not all that surprising. No, definitely not. And in fact, let's look at the first half of the schedule. Let's revisit what we had picked. Okay. You and I both had uh, L for Utah. And that was, in fact, an L. Took an L in that game. We had win over McNeese State. We had... L over Tennessee, which we got a win in. So that was the beginning of both Allen and I picking losses that turned into wins. Hopefully that <laughs> will continue. Charlotte win. That's a win. Kentucky we had as a win, which turned into a loss, which we then famously said Kentucky's still not good, and they're not. Vanderbilt win. South Carolina we both had as preseason wins. And then preseason wound up wins picking then- losses yeah. because of what Florida was doing on the road, which again was unexpected. So preseason you and I had Florida coming into this at 5-2, and two, which is exactly where Florida is. We then have Florida finishing at 7-5. and five. At the end of the program, we're going to revisit these final games, Georgia, Arkansas, LSU, Missouri, Florida State, and see if we change any of our picks for those. But we did have Florida entering here at 5-2, and two, and we did have Florida entering in with one SEC loss, which in most cases would have left Florida in control of its destiny to win the East. 
This to me, of course, Alan, I think speaks more clearly to Florida's super backloaded schedule than it does to any surprisingly great performance that Florida has had thus far in the SEC. And I think that's very true of Missouri as well, who's played a very weak schedule, along with Georgia, who has played a very weak schedule as well. Neither Missouri nor Georgia Allen has played a team this season that is currently ranked. Georgia's only played one team that was ranked at all at any point, which was Kentucky, uh, which is pretty crazy to be more than halfway through the season and to have that kind of schedule in an SEC conference slate. But that's just kind of how the schedule shook out this year. And Missouri does have that win against Kansas State. Which looks nice. Which is a good win. Yeah. Right. I think Missouri's played a, a tougher slate than Georgia has, relatively speaking, for sure. So, yeah, well, looking back at the schedule, I, I think I figured Florida would take one SEC loss. And, you know, if it wasn't Tennessee, I probably would have projected maybe South Carolina, just depending on how it shook out, because Florida would want that Kentucky game back and thinking that Kentucky was a little bit of a fraud, which they kind of are, but. Still, for where Florida is as a program, you can get beaten up by frauds. So, yes, mostly how we expected it to turn out. Obviously, that Utah game became painful once we were they were missing some of their star people. But as they've proven, they are quite capable of beating just about anybody, even with all their backups. Okay, so let's do a little check-in here with where Florida is statistically. And we're going to run this through the lens of James, now your favorite new stat, success rate. Um, Florida is overall ranked. Guess this in your heads. People are listening home. Yeah, what imagine imagine in your mind what you think Florida's offensive success rate is overall. It is 23, which is really interesting. Now, I did not strip out the, the McNeese game, State, yeah. which is important. It's probably more like 35 if you take that out because that was such an outlier game for Florida's offense. But the South Carolina game has now also boosted it. And obviously, there's enough data now where, forget it, I'll lump all the teams together and do it this way. It saves me a lot of time. Right. But so either tell, way, 23rd. Yeah, higher than I would have thought, certainly. Why don't you dig into that a little bit in terms of the other parts of that? Yeah, let's break it down and then I'll define what's happening. On standard downs, so that's going to be you know, first down or any down essentially that is not a passing down, which I will define a passing down in a second. On standard downs, Florida is a solid 17th in the country. That's more than solid. That's robust. Now, Billy's offense, as we said before the season, when we debuted, or I guess during the season after game one, when we debuted success rate, um, Billy's offenses tend to be pretty solid on standard downs. He tends to be a, a good first down play caller, uh, tends to get good yardage. That makes sense because his team tend to run the ball well. And so that's what you expect to see. On passing downs, however, and this has been the Achilles heel for Billy, I think, for most of his career as an offensive play caller and designer, is this is where the struggle tends to be. He's had a couple of years where he's been good, but mostly he's in the middle. And right now we're 61st on passing downs. Right in the middle. And a passing down is very simply second and seven or longer or third and five or longer. And those are obviously passing downs because you typically are not going to be able to run for it. Now, passing plays, Florida's 22nd. So that's telling you that Florida is excelling on passing on first down. We know Billy likes to pass a lot on first down. And then also on downs, of course, that are not an actual passing down. And running play-wise, Florida's 34th. This is flipped from what Billy normally is. Normally, his running play rate is higher. But teams, of course, are really loading the box in the SEC to stop Billy. And therefore, he's often facing 
uh, more advantageous passing scenarios. And Florida is, in fact, doing pretty well. So those numbers, 23rd overall, 17 standard downs, 61st passing downs, 26, I mean, 22nd passing, 34th running. Those are those are pretty good numbers. Those are, those are plus numbers. offensive numbers minus the passing down. Now, all of this should be noted that Florida has faced a, a, a rather incredibly friendly slate of horrifically bad defensive teams outside of Utah. Everyone else has been horrific. Tennessee is middling, if not improving, in some of their recent games. Uh, but the rest of them are, are as bad as you can get. Vanderbilt, as bad as you can get. South Carolina, as bad as you can get. Um, Charlotte, as bad as you can get. I mean, like, historically bad. bad. So it's like a lot of this data... More than 50% is being filled with the absolute bottom 5% of college football defenses. That's not to say we're not going to count the stats. Just to give you an idea that this is not like Florida's done this versus a murderer's row. We can bank on this offense now being this level. It's highly likely that the mean is lower than this and Florida's going to revert backwards when they face some better competition moving into this part of the season. We're not going to finish here is what I'm going to say. And if we did... That would mean Florida's going to take a major step forward in the second half of the season. We're going to win some games people don't expect us to win. But I think it's more likely a mean revert. But right now, midway through, that's where we are. And and those numbers, of course, outside of the very obvious passing down deficiency, which we've covered very well in the podcast, uh, are are relatively solid. Yeah, so those numbers are, again, success rate is a really good stat. It doesn't tell you the entire story. But if you're a Florida fan looking for hope, you're going to look at that South Carolina statistical kind of production and the way it just looked and felt and say, maybe we're on a path towards improvement. Now that's one data point, but it is the most recent data point. Interestingly for Florida going into the bye week you know, good vibes head into the bye week after that, that win at South Carolina. All right. Let's talk about the defense. All right. Think in your head. What do you think? And it's higher than you think. Again, we've praised the defense. They've had some games where they didn't play as well, but they are still 10th overall in success rate. And that's why it's interesting. I fielded, and you, you and I both fielded a lot of comments, but especially in the Film Review channel about how the defense is, in fact, it sucks. And it's just like it was last year, and we knew it, and they're frauds. And it doesn't really matter what I seem to display on film or what we say on the podcast. Some people, I think, just want to believe the defense still sucks because we're Florida fans and things have been difficult, you know, for the past 12 years. But the numbers across the board bear it out. This defense is actually a good defense. Now, are they like an all-time shutdown defense? No, but they are actually solid and they're good. They do tend to give up explosive plays, which will hurt you, obviously. But if you look at these numbers, when you when you dig deeper here, Alan, just look at the consistency. Standard downs, 11th. Passing downs, 17th. Passing plays, 18th. Running plays, 9th. Now, this feels way worse than that because unfortunately, Florida has a ridiculous amount of standard deviation, both to the high side and to the low side. So if you're looking, if you're a stats person, then you know what skew is and you're going to love the idea that Florida's got like, the, the skew is like basically either all the way at one end or all the way at the other end mm-hmm. of their distribution. It's very unusual. You're getting lots of tail results on both sides, <laughs> which is how this data comes out being still pretty good when you get some games that you're almost losing because you play so poorly, but then you're getting games you're winning because you play so well. And I think Florida would do well to have some more middling results, actually. Uh, that would be better for them in the future instead of all of these tail results that they have or or even a, a positive skew result where we get more results on the positive side. So the defense, I think the numbers to me make sense, 
when you get away from the man, Kentucky was really bad. South Carolina looks pretty bad. The first half of Utah was bad, but the rest of it all was actually really good for the most part. And in fact, Florida's third down defense still pretty solid in most places. Um, so if you think the defense is, is the same as last year's defense, that's just factually incorrect with regards to data uh, that you can look at across any metric as well as film you might want to look at. It is a much better defense than last year. And it has faced some decent offenses. It has also faced some very poor offenses as well. Uh, so the second half, we're going to learn. I think the defense will also mean revert back to a level that was better. But again, Alan, what was the bar we set preseason? Top 50 mm-hmm. for the defense. And I think Florida's defense is absolutely going to finish in the top 50 but not where they are here. It would be remarkable if this defense finishes here. It's probably not going to happen, uh, but that is a, a big step forward in where Florida might be able to go. And lastly, here's what I want to say. If Florida gets to the point talent-wise where we all want them to get to, then you can look at some of these success rates and say, this is probably what you would see them doing when they are the more talented team. And that is why I like success rate. What is the result of your average play versus you know, these situations, passing and running. And if you're more talented, these numbers are probably somewhat good, which is why I love Coach Ham and why I think Billy's passing down style has got to get fixed in some regard because that has been relatively consistent regardless of his talent level. So there you have it. That's kind of a peek behind the hood. We could look at a bunch of other stats, but the idea of what your per play production is is a really good way to break down how your offense and defense are doing. And so far... Success rate, I think, rather nicely explains right where Florida is. Overall, 23rd on offense, overall 10th on defense. I think a lot of us probably feel like Florida could be ranked 20 to 25th right now. And that's sort of what you're seeing right there. I think the numbers bear that out. Yeah, it's interesting because obviously it's a relative ranking. It's, you know, it's number 11 versus the, you know, in the list of FBS teams. Right. So you have to dig in and say, like, why is that? And what is that? Well, you can look at other things like yards per play and other things that will tell you more of the story on these individual numbers. But as a quick snapshot, without getting saying a bunch of numbers into the podcast, I think that this is a helpful way to um, think about it. And obviously, we didn't come up with success rate. That's a long time analytics stalwart there. Uh, but, you know, I, I think also that for the defense, Florida does have a chance to maintain some of its stature because you would expect it to improve because of how youthful it is. They're playing so many young guys. They're playing a ton of guys in general, a lot of transfers, younger DC, right? The, the most, the default narrative with they that is that they would improve by how much we'll see. Does that, does that balance out the, you know, uptick in competition? We'll see. I, again, I don't expect them to, to remain as lofty as they are right now. I'm mean, going to face some teams like LSU who put up points. So you'll, I think you'll see this slide, but hopefully some of the stuff that's hurt them, they'll improve upon that and they'll maintain a fairly high level. And yeah, Florida, I think on both sides of the ball has a chance to improve. I think that's encouraging. And that's what we set as the goal for this season, right? To kind of put the mid season bow on the on field stuff. The goal was improve the style of play see progress on defense, see progress on offense. Now, offense is still a question mark as to which offense shows up for the rest of the year. We saw flashes of this versus Tennessee last year, and it disappeared. 
we saw significant newness that we, again, we saw last week versus South Carolina, two weeks ago rather, that we hope to see continue with regards to aggressiveness of play calling, second down passing, just a mentality in addition to rubber all concepts, et cetera. Uh, so does that continue, right? So this is the mid-season report, not the final report, but I think there's reasons for optimism that on the field, perhaps for the first time, we're starting to see the foundational components. The building's not halfway built, right? But the foundational components that you can begin to imagine filling in the rest of the picture and seeing a building that is solid rather than what Florida's had before, which is, you know, the building gets put up and it's got issues. You can begin to imagine that what happens in the back half of the schedule is going to go a long way towards what you think that building might look like. But the off-field results, those also must be combined. As we've said before, it's that three-legged stool. This is the most important leg of the stool, in my opinion. And something we had said before the year, Alan, and then also up until the early part of the year, that this was the part of the stool that was most encouraging because you have to have it. And, that and is Florida recruiting. got some big news in the recruiting world over the weekend. So, yes, four-star defensive line commit LJ McCray. Now, if that sounds weird because most of the reporting has been that he's a five-star, well, we tend to like the 247 composite as just a default ranking. Well, it's pretty skewed on him. He's a top 10 player in two of the rankings, decently high another, and then one of the rankings has him like outside the 250. So uh, that puts him outside the top 100 in uh, the kind of the tier system that, you know, James likes to use. And so, and that we like to use, so it won't actually move the needle on the overall tier system, but uh, I think this is a big win for Florida considering who they were taking him from. And the reporting around it was that maybe he was going to Georgia or FSU, maybe Miami and Florida was maybe a distant fourth. Uh, while the chatter from inside Florida was that they liked their chances and, you know, he committed to the good guys there. But this is a big win for Billy Napier and his staff continues to get the type of player that I think that Florida is really needs this kind of top end talent. And, you know, who knows, he might be the 250 best player in the country that'll bear itself out. But uh, the more consensus in uh, he's a top 25 kind of guy and you need the, that level of player and we'll see where he is when everything shakes out. Um, I assume he'll be a top 100 player by the end of it, but uh, big win for Florida on the recruiting trail. So a little update where Florida is at midseason, right? And this is maybe, again, the most important thing if you're tracking like metrics and success that I'm we're not big recruiting people, but looking at these big picture ones. So UF is currently third with 22 commits in the 247 composite player ranking or rating average of 92.5. So in the tier system, that's tier one. So two top 30-ish players, seven top 100s, and 14 top 300 players. So that obviously is amazing. That's an incredible result if this holds, right? And Florida presumably will add more players into this mix. Um, They're at at 22 commits. I would assume they're going to take more than that. Uh, Last year at this time, UF was 23rd with 12 commits. So uh, have increased their recruiting productivity by a large margin. And it kind of, you know, as I was thinking about this, we tend to talk about a coach's bump class being his second class, right? His first full class. Well, with all the chaos surrounding NIL and transfer portal and 
you know, just kind of jumping into a weird time when you're coming in late in that process and there's an early signing day that if you, and I don't know if this is true, but if you, if you want to think about this as Billy's bump class, that would be much more in line with like a historically good recruiter. So him being off by year, it's very explainable. Again, I don't know. The data is still too early on this, whether your bump, your true bump year should now be considered your second full class, but great results for Billy and the staff. I'm sure they're thrilled with it right now. It's the first time since we started the podcast nine years ago that we've been able to say Florida has entered into a tier one recruiting situation if it holds. Mm -hmm. That is significant. This is the best recruiting class assembled since Urban Meyer. That is significant. Uh, and, and we had said when Billy got hired, he had passed the three-year test. And one of the major reasons we preferred him over a wild card like Lane Kiffin was this. He had proven to be a recruiter. He had out-recruited Louisiana's baseline by a significant margin. Whereas what I think is still a major surprise to a lot of people I talk to, Lane Kiffin has not. He, got a, he gets a lot of flash and buzz as sort of being a recruiting-oriented guy. But he actually does not recruit above the baseline of the schools he's at, which I think is a major problem to winning a title. Uh, On-field stuff, of course, if he's behaving, you know, seems to be really solid at Ole Miss. But for Billy, this was the major sort of program builder. This is what his resume suggests, right? We talk about the offense, there's question marks there, but this was where there wasn't a question mark. And this is one thing that's very encouraging. This is his superpower, so to speak, and he's doing it. And that's what you need the guy you hired to do when you hired him primarily for this reason, organizational building, foundation building, recruiting, consistency, keeping guys in the program, all those things that he had to hit on, he is hitting on. And he's doing so in the midst of, I think, relatively difficult, not only external circumstances, but internal circumstances due to performance, fan frustration, Florida's track record of bad performance in the past 12 years, not exactly the wind in the back of your sails moment here for him. True. And here we are with a top recruiting class and it's getting better every year, which is that upward trend you also want to see. So in this case, Alan, this is an A plus, a 10 out of 10, a grand slam. One leg of this stool is absolutely looking fantastic. And this is not, as we talked about with the Will Muschamp classes of yesteryear, sort of an ill-built class right. where you might get some big headliners some nice numbers it's poppy and to finish in the top five but it is not a class where you say top to bottom quality players are here this or is or that it makes sense and fills needs and things that's like that. right this is a top to bottom quality player situation now we still have i think a gap that we're going to keep talking about which is offensive line wise mm -hmm. we still do not seem to be there uh and also hat hat tip here to sean spencer uh, coach chaos florida's defensive line coach who, who i think is is really earning his pay here at Florida and only not sure. only who he picks in as transfers, but also who he's, who's recruiting in high school. And this is what we need to be seeing on the offensive line side of things. And we're not, it's kind of a glaring difference in how successful I think this coaching staff has been in this regard, but a big, big win um, for Sean Spencer here. For yeah, sure. for sure. If you look at, I mean, I think our highest rated grouping would be defensive line by far. Correct. The top notch guys they pulled in last year. And then, you know, probably Next after that would be in the secondary where no surprise you have someone like Coach Raymond, you know, an established ace recruiter. So, yeah, the offensive line – I mean, offensive line is weird recruiting-wise. You know, you you kind of have to, like, squint and try to project these guys. There's a lot of them in the three-star range that are going to end up being good. Um, but you'd still like to pull in those top guys because those are the guys who are probably going to be in the NFL – 
even if they were only averaging in high school. So Florida still has some spots open. They're still chasing some of these guys, right? There's a guy in town a couple weeks ago that was, you know, people were very much trying to uh, pull in from a fan perspective. And so, yeah, this isn't the end of the story. And obviously the, the relative ranking third is less important, you know, right? That might slide or fluctuate depending on, you know, who would come in above them as they add. But if you're looking at the tier system, that will tell you what are you getting the type of overall uh, recruiting profile that you need. And again, Georgia's doing things. It's We have these Georgia-Alabama rankings that totally skew this. They are like such outliers in terms of recruiting. So you look at Georgia, like, oh, they're still number one. It's like we're having our best class. They're still way higher than Florida. But if you look at this, you know, we'll see where it ends up, right? There's going to be a recalibration of rankings, but Florida could have as many as, you know, four to five top 50-ish players um, at the end of this thing, which would be way, way, way better than they normally done. Way better, and that's what you'll start to see show up on the field. So could not be more excited about that mid-season report card and really mid-three-year test report card. We're one and a half years into hmm. the experience now, and the three-year test, as we often talk about on the show, of course, is, is I think the most probable way to identify whether or not your coach can win a title. If you're not showing progress in significant things, both on and off the field within three years, and we'll get into that metric if it's the first time you've heard that term in detail, as we always do when the time is right. But if you're not showing enough, you're not passing enough of the test, then you can you can generally confidently let your coach go, knowing you're probably never going to get there. Um, Jim Harbaugh continues to try to sort of be the the outlier to that. But again, Jim Harbaugh had a resume that would suggest you give him time, given what he did in the NFL, and also had a pretty good three years, just didn't crack the playoffs or finishing in the top of his conference for that. But Florida, year and a half in, still one and a half years left, a lot of things to be decided. But again, you can see some positive things here from a foundational perspective. This is a rebuild. Rebuilds are not easy. I'm going to use one more baseball analogy. In baseball, you have to return over your entire roster. The Astros have been unbelievable now. They cheat. I hate them. I can't stand them. They do a lot of crazy stuff. But they rebuilt that team from the worst team. It took them about four or five years to a team that has now seven or eight straight years been an absolute juggernaut. And so football is more frustrating because the games themselves are so highlighted like every game is like this really important war and there's play calling and there's stuff you can do and it's gadgety. You can you can help your team with great coaching, probably more so than you can in baseball, but it is still a rebuild. You still have to bring talent into the door before you can really win. Always important to keep that in mind when we are evaluating all of the analytics and the on-field stuff, which we try to do here too as well, right? We try to use our own team as a benchmark to see, are we getting better rather than say, hey, we should already be a top five offense and defense. So middle rebuild process, mid-season report, kind of a dual scenario going on here. And now Allen's got some fun, some fun, uh, you know, Allen, Allen Williams-like categories we <laughs> have to look at here for the, for the first half, you know, kind of in recap. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. 
leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day. Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Whether you're a world-class athlete or a podcaster like me, we all understand the importance of mental and physical well-being and proper recovery for top-notch performance. That's why I'm excited that Unified Healing is sponsoring podcasts on the Blue Wire Network. Unified Healing is a new and super innovative global network of wellness centers powered by Energy Enhancement System, or EE System. If you haven't heard of the EE System yet, then you'll want to listen up. This technology promotes wellness, deep relaxation, purification, and rejuvenation. Wherever you are across the globe, access to a center is easy and affordable. Interested in experiencing the EE System technology for yourself? Go to unifiedhealing.com slash bluewire to learn more and find a center near you. That's unified, U-N-I-F-Y-D, healing.com slash bluewire. No material or testimonials on the Unified Healing website are intended to be viewed as medical advice or a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified healthcare provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition or treatment and before undertaking a new healthcare regimen, including EE system. So just before we get to that, uh, someone on Twitter reminded me that it's nice to have a recruitment come down and not have any John Ruiz drama that he's not trying to steal all of our top recruits currently because his stock is tanking maybe. But Amen. Amen on that, by the way. That was so frustrating. Obviously, we covered that extensively, uh, <laughs> and that is nice. Great. I'm, I'm glad that that was brought up. All right. First half, first season awards, first half of the year. How about your first half MVP? I mean, it's, it's just, this is always kind of frustrating because it's like you have to you have to probably go with a quarterback like every time you do this. I'm going to go with I'm going to go with two though. Okay. I'm going to split this cuz I think what we've seen, we've already talked about this, is that one Graham Mertz obviously has vastly exceeded a lot of Florida fans' expectations. I think he's what we thought he would be for the most part here, capable pilot. And then I think that it's impossible for me not to name on the offensive side of the football that Trey Wilson has been an engine that has changed the offense. Hmm. And we talked about this. Like, Look at the performances when Trey has played football for Florida's offense versus when he has not. And it is a completely different offense. Everyone else is the same. He's there. It is way more productive. So I think if I'm looking at production and if I probably had to pull the coaches, who's the one guy you don't want to have miss a game? Obviously Mertz, especially with who's behind him. But then who's second? I think right now, you can say Ricky. He does a lot of stuff for Florida's offense, of course. He's he's more veteran presence. But, I mean, I think right now, Trey would enter that conversation because he's just a different level mm. of dynamism that we do not have. And it's showing on film. It shows how teams play him, and it opens things up for this offense. I think you have to say Graham Mertz on some level. Again, the above replacement level, too, if we were starting Max Brown – this offense would be in the toilet. We're in complete trouble. You cannot and, lose Mertz. Yeah, and not to say that Max Brown is 
terrible, but he's he's not ready yet. At least that's our perception. I we haven't seen enough snaps of him, but I, that's what I, I presume would be the outcome. And yeah, he's played towards the top end of what we hoped he would be. And the offensive problems have not, as we've kind of laid it out, it's not been like a Mertz problem. He's not been the limiting factor. I think he could be if everything catches up to him. You know, if you had a much better, you know, overall system and players, then they're like, okay, Mertz is just fine. He probably would limit you. But right now he's been, I think, the bright spot. And if I'm going to, you know, but it's interesting because I think the defense has been the thing that we've been more excited about, at least the future of. And if I'm going to pick somebody off of that, I guess I would have to say Princely. And again, his stat line is not jaw dropping, but he's provided, you know, just a ton of pressure from that spot. And again, the drop off from him is is pretty big. And then I guess another guy I would put in the honorable mention would be Shamar James. I know he didn't have his best game last week, but uh, the linebacker play has been way better. He's been excellent, and I think the future is really bright for him. So there's a lot of bright spots on that defense. But if I'm picking out two guys, I'll I'll throw them out there. Okay, best moment. I'll go first on this one. I think it's going to be the same. Well, maybe not. We'll see what you say, but. If I think about this year, it's that Ricky Pearsall touchdown against South Carolina. That was an incredible moment. There's been some fun ones along the way. There's some fun ones, the ET and run against Tennessee. But that that catch, I think, will live on for a little while. And, you know, he had another nice moment. Didn't mean, didn't mean anything, but his amazing catch, one-handed grab. But this one, that touchdown was really huge. Yeah, I think that is a is a team moment, which is why it's also my favorite moment, right? Ricky Ricky on that one really just runs a very basic skinny post. He runs a he take a step to the corner and then a post route, but that was a culmination of Mertz playing a lot of football, executing the concept perfectly, a good play call, good play design, right coverage, right timing against kind of what Florida's trend up until that point would have been in that situation with that time left on second down. And then what it meant, I think, to this right. football team, how you feel listening to this podcast right now, how we feel delivering it, how we feel discussing Florida at the midseason, how the recruiting news feels before Georgia, hat tip to Billy for, I think, masterfully again, engineering Florida news during bye weeks, keeping Florida relevant. All of those feelings are different because of that Mertz to, to Ricky touchdown and then because the defense holds on. Mm-hmm. Right. And so that's a team, a, a team watershed point to get us to where we are. So I agree with you. That's the moment I think that right now uh, is either going to be a moment that launches Florida into a surprisingly good result and nice season, or we get the expectation and that still becomes a moment that changes Florida's season. You look back and say seven and five versus six and six, big difference, I think, in perception and feel. Or a moment where we just get clapped in the back half of the season and it becomes forgettable. And that's what's fun about doing this right now. It's, it's going to be one of those three things. But right now, uh, a great moment for sure. And again, I, hopefully, I think we're all optimistic here, that that begins to signify perhaps that the wind is moving behind Florida football, even if it's still going to be a slow burn, that maybe now we're going to start moving forward and we can begin to say, ah, the past might be behind us some. All right, biggest surprise for you this year. A, I'm gonna I'm gonna say on the downside, um, the biggest surprise has probably been. I mean, it's it's it could be upside. I mean, I'm gonna say the receivers. 
though. Okay. The receivers have been, it's not necessarily their fault. That's why it's, that's why it's like tricky, right? I don't know that it's, I think Caleb Douglas could have been really productive, but we weren't throwing him the football. And when we did, he caught every pass and now he's out. But I think we had a lot of excitement for Florida's receivers entering into the year. Trey's been hurt for most of the games, the two games he's played. We just gave him a, an MVP style award. We haven't seen really anything out of Andy Jean's been Andy hurt. Jean and Mazel haven't performed. We Mizell lost basically been, has been right, hasn't played really played a snap or two here and there. And then obviously, um, you know, just just injuries and just haven't really had a chance to make a mark yet. They're young. We knew that would be the way, but I think I had thought maybe we'd start to oh look, we've got some guys. And right now we have a guy in Trey and a bunch of other question marks outside of maybe Ricky doing what he's doing. So on offense, I'll say that's the biggest surprise. And on defense, I'm going to say I'm I'm not surprised. I think the defense, like personnel-wise, performed how we probably thought they would. We knew we weren't going to get as much pressure once we lost Boone. Uh, yet the defensive line still actually gets a decent amount of pressure. Sacks and pressure are different, but they get a lot of pressure. Corners we thought would be solid. They've largely been solid. Marshall's had some moments, but largely been solid. Safeties are young. Good upside. Linebackers are outperformed. So... That maybe sounds wild, but surprise to me would be like, I really didn't expect this. And I'm going to go with the receivers just being sort of woefully unproductive outside of, you know, kind of just a South Carolina game. All right, I'm going to do a good surprise, and that's a man by the name of Arliss. I think there'd been some, like, intrigue around him. The tight end group is actually a huge surprise. Yeah, you nailed it. See, you're the personnel savant. That that was our worst group, and you're right. All of a sudden, solid. Hayden Hansen's played a lot of snaps, been, you know, at least decent blocking, and And, he's a guy who can catch the ball. And even Odom got a bunch of catches involved. So, you know what? Great call. But Arliss has been excellent in the last couple weeks, right? Really taking that to another level. Had a... You know, one game where he dominated statistically and the end of the South Carolina game was one of the most important players on the field. And he's the guy there was a lot of intrigue about, but not a lot of buzz necessarily that he was going to be a breakout player. And if he continues his you know trend line for the rest of the year, he's going to be you know one of the three most important guys on this offense or four, you know, four most, most if you include Mertz in that. But um, yeah, the, that... Is a surprise. And then I think defensively, the reclamation project of Scooby Williams, right? So, again, showed some of his weaknesses last game, but he was a guy that you really couldn't even put on the field and have any kind of confidence to a guy who's made a lot of plays for this team. Yeah, well done. Great pull to tight ends. That's a, that is, that is I think, the answer. The worst position group turning into one that has been competent at certain levels and now with an emerging guy in Arliss who is maybe – going to help Florida down the run be a guy you have to cover. Yeah. And that is certainly a surprise because all it was were question marks. And we couldn't even identify from what we heard from the inside who it may be that emerges. And we're starting Odom. and I mean, we're, we're trying everyone out at that position group. So good And then hopefully there. Tony Livingston, you know, who knows about him? There was some buzz on him. He was getting, you know, the starter tag put next to his name. But Arliss's emergence, I think, could change things. Right. You have to account for him running routes right now. Whereas like Odom, you could kind of just ignore – He's out in the flat, whatever. But you give enough space. You saw against the South Carolina game. I mean, Arliss will put it by you. Okay, best unit. I was looking back at last year's awards, and we gave this to the offensive line. (laughs) feels funny to say that now, but I'm going to say the defensive line. I think they've been the most solid. You think about all the defensive tackles that they rotate through there, and they're almost all excellent. You're getting a lot of production from Princely, as we mentioned. 
Uh, Sap's been really solid, and then the freshmen have all looked really good too. So I think it's not even really close. Yeah, D-line, and then I would say especially D-tackles. I think they have quietly been excellent. Even though we've gotten gashed a lot in, in some of the gap running schemes, it is, as you've seen on film, almost never because of the D-tackles. They're handling double teams. They are holding the exact line of scrimmage. Uh, they're doing everything you'd want them to do. They rarely get out of their lanes. They, they pressure the passer well. I mean, they are playing such good football, including the younger guys when they come in, to your point. And uh, yeah, I'm with you there. I think that's immediately what jumped out to me as as well, even though I think there's a lot of fans out there, Alan, who again seem to be venting frustration that we can't get pressure on quarterbacks and the D-line can't get in there. And I think that's just data-wise incorrect, first of all. Yeah, there's pressure. The sacks haven't quite gotten home. Right. Right. That that tends to be a really noisy stat. Right. Missing some of the turnovers, that would be indicative of that. And... Yeah, it's tough, right? You you want those in place. You want those sacks. You want those strip sacks. You want all that stuff, right? The best units still have that. But uh, they're not getting out of their lanes. So sometimes you might get a hero play, you might get a sack, and then you, the other four plays you're giving up big runs or things are happening poorly. So they're, they're being, for the most part, you know, team players in there are doing their jobs. Man, I just saw uh, Antoine... Powell Ryland's name on an all transfer team. He's playing well for Virginia Tech. Like, why did this guy leave exactly? I don't know. We said it when it happened. We were yeah, shocked. We were dumbfounded then, by that. And then you have, you know, of course, Boone. And as we mentioned, as you know, a guy we could have really used. Of course, everybody has injuries, so you can't um put too much stock in that. But if you add those two guys back in the mix, this could be, you know. Maybe you know that starts to really dominate and take over games. And, so and I think I think the that. most important thing for me again, we're we're a rebuilding team. Do mm-hmm. you ask yourself this question? If you're like, man, I'm just more frustrated than you are, James. I want more production out of this, this the flashy stats. And again, it's a team game. Like you can have a great defensive line, and if your back end is is giving up some plays here and there, or is letting that first read be open, then you're not going to get home. But more importantly, ask yourself this: Is what Florida's putting on film with that D line? positive for the future if they keep repeating this performance year after year after year with even better players does that bode well for future turnovers and sack rate and stuff rate yes absolutely yes absolutely 100 percent. and i think that's the excitement you're hearing from obviously both alan and i from a personnel and scheme standpoint and just a just a cleanliness of play you look at how princely's playing the same spot that cox played last year it's a good point and it's vastly different and again princely's probably the guy that most college football fans don't know anything about and he is balling in large part because we do not have a counterpart on the other side and teams know that so they can account for princely getting pressure and they can move the pocket accordingly they can come help block they can do enough to get away from that you need two guys generally to be able to meet in the middle so to speak all right, freshman of the half year so far. Uh, so Trey Wilson, I think, would obviously be get mentioned here. That would have been my pick as well. Give me somebody else. There's a long list here, but who's There's your— There's a long list. I'm going to take Jordan Castell, even if uh, he has had some struggles tackling. But his ability to be seemingly always in the right look and even coaching up other guys at times, why they were not in the right look on a split scheme. I'm sorry, split safety defensive scheme, which is complicated, as complicated as it can be, is just beyond impressive. Uh, And Florida has not had issues largely like we've seen in the years past with balls beating them over the top because of safety play. 
largely has not happened. And when Castell's in there, it's almost never happened. And that is major kudos to a true freshman playing that spot. So I think for me, I would look in that direction. Yeah, for sure. I think it's got to be him to come in right away and nail down a starting spot from day one and, you know, perform really admirably. You know, it's hard to be a true freshman out there playing that complicated of a position. And yeah, again, not perfect, but really great, really dependable. And the, yeah, of course, you can watch him play and you can say, well, there's a lot of errors to improve. But for a freshman, I think it's been awesome. And there's a lot of guys to mention here, right? So those D linemen, Cersei and um, Collins have been excellent. We've seen Bryce Thornton start to take on more minutes at that safety, other safety spot. So Jakeem Jackson's got a lot of run. There's a lot of guys who are who are playing well um, and playing a decent amount of snaps is, you know, for this team. Okay. Thing you most want to see change or improve over the back half. Now I would have said special teams, I think uh, as of like two weeks ago, but there maybe has been enough of this. I would like to see better play from especially the right side of the offensive line. I don't know if that's possible, there are windows for improvement, just more snaps together, more continuity, development. Maybe you mix in a guy who hasn't played in there yet, like Cam Waits. Maybe he's just as ready now. But I don't know if that's possible, but that's my dream scenario, that we would get much better production out of that right side of the line. Yeah, Mazuka and then George, I think, is who you're signaling out yeah. there. And that that's largely been correct. Mazuka has been, has you know, one or two or three plays a game, someone just beats him immediately, and that ends a potentially promising passing play. And I don't, I don't want to dog either of these guys, especially not George. I feel more for George because he's playing a position that I just don't think he's suited to play. And he's doing fine. I'm not highlighting him on the podcast every week like we have before with previous right tackles, right? <laughs> well, they should but, not be named. Yeah, but, you know, it's it's to your point, yes, if you could get maybe 8 to 9% better production out of those guys, that's probably one or two plays a game that go the other way. And that may, that may change an outcome for Florida. And so I like what you're requesting there. Uh, for me... I'm a scheme guy. We all know I love to put scheme ahead of just about everything else, whether that's right or wrong. I just want to see Florida continue with the the mentality that was on display versus South Carolina uh, in general. Aggressive. And that's and also, by the way, let me let me go one step back. I think the best offense takes what the defense gives you. So if a team wants to sit back and cover four and bail out of the ball and take the short stuff all day long, I don't want to throw the ball deep. I'll never throw it deep. It's stupid. Don't force it. But if they're going to dare you, as teams have been daring us, as South Carolina dared us, as Utah dared us, as other teams have dared us at certain times, have the mentality that if you're going to lose, you're going to lose doing the right thing mathematically. If Florida keeps that mentality, I'd love to see what happens for the rest of the year. I also think that mentality fuels the rest of the team. And I think this young team would be well-suited in the state of Florida, in Gainesville, with a fan base who naturally sides with aggression, to lean more on that. And, and I think that will help a multitude of just things in general. So I'd like to see that mentality carry over. The defense already has that mentality. It's very aggressive with how our defense plays. One reason why I like it. And it's not recklessly aggressive. It's just aggressive in its tone. They're trying to shut you down. They're not just trying to survive. I want to see the offense try to blow you out rather than just sort of survive and grind its way to a win. Well said. I like that a lot. Okay, let's talk about Billy himself. 
some people were predicting that this might be Billy's last year. I don't know if that was ever really in the cards, but a poor performance could put Billy on the hot seat. So let, let me just ask how warm do you think Billy's seat is right now? And I'm not saying it is necessarily, but one being Nick Saban or we'll use, I guess new the new gold standard is Kirby smart, right? Yeah. Kirby's got the coolest seat in the whole world. And also yeah. Nick does too, but sure. Uh, and 10 being, gosh, who is imminently going to get fired. There's not a lot, not a lot of obvious people here um, that Florida fans will maybe imminently know, but um, let's say Dan Enos, who just got fired this past week as, so two days ago, Dan Enos, who's got fired as, as Arkansas's OC. So 10, just as hot as it could be. Proving what we said before is that you can fire an OC you in can. the midseason. You can't fire yourself as the head coach in the midseason. It's a little more complicated to drop your own play duties. But all right, fine. So from the Enos to Kirby Smart scale, fan perception, Billy is at a five. Okay. Pretty warm. But admin perception... Even me, myself, I'll give you two. Admin behind closed doors perception, he's at a two. For me, he's at a three. And that's probably only because I have question marks about what we do with the offense. Uh, and, and I want to revisit that for one second, Alan. You know, when I made that call, we had talked about we've seen all the data so far to indicate that things won't change. But we are all about changing the pot. Mm-hmm. I'm, I will acknowledge that generally speaking, if you get enough body of evidence, change is highly unlikely to occur. Notice the word highly unlikely and not guaranteed because change can occur in the most surprising of circumstances in life. And you always have to be flexible to that. And if the data changes, my mind changes. My job is to try to follow the data as best I can see it as a fallible human not to lock myself into a position when the data changes. So, you know, Billy changes the data. Let's go. Let's roll with Billy. But a three for me, because again, it's a three-year test. All the reasons we hired Billy, I think he's doing very well at. And the reasons we had questions for, we have questions for, but it's not, they're not definitively answered yet. And again, getting an OC is a very simple fix, relatively speaking, much more simple than, oh, Dan Mullen's problems, right? Mm. Which were not quick fixes. Uh, so I don't think his seat is warm at all. I think admin wise, they're probably looking for him to have five years, I think was the initial picture for them. Four years if things were looking iffy, uh, which gives him two and a half more years from now, which means his seat is not at all warm. I think some of the media members who were out there saying he's going to get fired this year were not following Florida football closely. Clearly, we're not following recruiting at all. And maybe also not looking at our schedule in general. Now, Florida was playing some of the schedules these other schools have. You have a much different feel for Billy Napier's record. So I think when you popped open the hood and saw what was under the engine there, Alan, fans are at a five, admins at a two, I'm at a three, um, with Kirby being a one. So very low. I don't think this is really a thing outside of Florida fans carrying 12 plus years of bad football behind them and frustrating years that's being projected onto a new coach who's in year one and a half. Sure. I think the perception of, I think of the different parties that you let out is accurate. Now, Florida won six games last year. It's over under was five and a half this year. I think just stacking two six just win seasons is, puts almost anybody on the hot seat. Right. Especially in the SEC where you, the expectations are way higher. 
Now, when you zoom out or zoom in, maybe depending on how you want to look at it with what he's doing and recruiting, I think that cools it off considerably. I don't think he's actually in danger of being fired. I think one, the buyout is prohibitive for that. Florida is not going to pay that kind of buyout. Now he could enter into year three on the hot seat. If some, if things go South, it's a very real possibility that Florida could lose its last five games and end the year on a five game losing streak. And let's say this recruiting class falls apart and you end up ranked 22nd or whatever. I don't think Billy's fired, but I think he opens the year like pre-fired. Like, yeah, I think it seats a nine. And that's yeah, it goes yeah. to a nine. I mean that that's that's the bottom worst case mm-hmm. data point that you're indicating right there. Right. So it's still variable, right? You there's a lot of bad things that could happen down the stretch here that would move him into a much different place. But right now I don't think it's one, it's probably technically very cold because I don't there's almost zero chance he's getting fired outside a McElwain death threat kind of a thing or something that happens. Uh, I, I can't see him getting fired. Um, and so, yeah, just that would, that's a good comment that his seat is considerably cooler than maybe the outside perception of it is. Okay. Most important game left on the schedule. I'm going to go first here and I'm going to say it's Arkansas. Despite the fact that they are limping in, they have fired their coach and their offensive coordinator. Well, it's actually why I think it's the most crucial game. Florida does not want to drop five in a row. That is by far the most winnable game on the schedule. It's at home against a team that's reeling. If you were somehow drop that game and drop all the other ones, oof. If you win that game, you get to six. You, if you're competitive in the other ones, I think that is like the floor, right, for what you need to accomplish over the back half. So Florida has to win that game. Dropping that game feels catastrophic. It's like the Vanderbilt game last year where it just sucks up all the momentum. All the other games are very understandable if you lose them. There's two top five teams left on the schedule. The other two teams are ranked. Arkansas, you have to win that game. So in that case, in that sense, it's the most important because none of the other ones buy you all that much if you win them, unless you win like all of them. Yeah, well said. I mean, you nailed it. And and again, I think to a lot of people's minds probably first came is it georgia or florida state which Mm -hmm. one do i want to win more and there's a lot of benefits to winning obviously either one of those games and of course if you beat georgia then forget it the arkansas game is absolutely no longer the most important game right that's that's but true but to your point though i think looking at it probability wise and looking back at last year if florida beats vanderbilt last year the entire optics of that football season are very different very, very different. very different. And the same thing can be true for this season. To what you just said, the most probable outcome is that Florida goes 2 and 3 or even 1 and 4 in these last remaining games. And if they do that and they have that win versus Arkansas versus not having it 0 and 5 or, you know, you get a weird combination of a 1 and 4, but you lose that game at home a chance to kind of cement where you're at, show some good vibes. It becomes that Vanderbilt game where if you don't have the Florida State win, which we didn't get last year, you get this oof feeling ending the season where the Arkansas win can probably say, okay, we beat the teams we should have beaten. We're close with the teams that are better than us. We are turning the corner, right? You can see, again, you can imagine what's being built on that foundation. But losing to the Vanderbilts of the world, a really waving the white flag Arkansas team at home. Those are the ones where you say, maybe this rebuild isn't what I thought it's going to be. 
it introduces tremendous doubt. So I like exactly how you categorize that. And I agree. That is oddly the most important game that is the least important game right, so to the national media and other people that are watching Florida football. Now, if you were like beat Georgia and Florida State and lose the Arkansas game, no one... The people would Arkansas be like, game is a head-scratching frustration, but we're a rebuild and still look what an we SEC, can accomplish. Yeah, Correct. they're still an SEC team. You know, they're talented. A lot of spots. So, yes, you can trade that out if you do much better. <laughs> Um, but that's the floor that raises the floor significantly. That's why I picked it. Okay. Let's say that I get to tell you right now, you can pick one of two between UGA and FSU to win. You'll not win the other one. Which one would you rather have? This is such a great question. Um, I'm going to try to answer this without getting the extra bonus of if you beat UGA, you can win the East and play the SEC title game. All those accoutrements that come with it. Because right. that's not fair because that just makes the UGA game always more important mm-hmm. to win. Always. I'm going to try to put them both in like a one-shot domino where it's just which one do you want to win? It's one game. That's all it means. And that makes it very difficult. And I think this is going to illustrate for me where my where my hatred really lies in life. And this makes sense given when I went to Florida and what I'd shared earlier at the program about how how Georgia was a poodle that we just continually tamed and beat. It's Florida State. I hate that Florida State is having this season where they think they're emerging. I hate that they're fourth behind us in recruiting right now. Mm. If you're not paying attention and you think Mike Norvell has built this veteran team this year that's a one-off of transfers, which was a narrative for a while, they're fourth in recruiting right now. By all accounts, they're here to stay. We on this very podcast like the Mike Norvell hire for Florida State. We thought that he was a good fit there. Seems like maybe he is. And I hate Florida State. I also hate Georgia, but I really hate Florida State. I mean, it's it's Florida State and no one else is close for me in hatred of the teams that we play. I hate them with every fiber of my being. I hate losing to them. I hate losing to Georgia, but I really hate losing to Florida State. And you know what? Georgia, There's the difference here is the game is in Jacksonville. Losing on a neutral site doesn't feel... Nearly as bad as losing to Florida State in your own stadium in your own city. So for me this year, this particular season, it would be beating Florida State. I would get more satisfaction out of that. Absolutely. I would trade a lot for that win, especially if they're undefeated coming into it. A chance to like ruin their season and maybe damage their playoff hopes at home would be such a treat. As you said, I'm aligned with you 100%. They are by far my most hated rival. Again, I think we're all products of our own environment, how we grew up, but I despise them, want them to lose at everything. And yes, if I had to pick, I'm picking that. Even though Georgia's number one, they're the two-time defending national champions, that would be a really sweet victory and it'd be awesome. But if I had to pick, I'd pick FSU and you know what? We'll see where we're sitting there at the end of the year. This could be a really compelling game, you know, come into the year. Uh, I'm kind of excited for it. I'm hopeful that we're going to continue to stack improvement upon improvement that we have a chance to take them down in that game. Be so satisfying to get them. And in so much awaits us. I mean, this second half of the season is the most backloaded one that we've covered as a podcast. Yes, for sure. And it is going to be full of mystery and intrigue and highs and lows. And uh, obviously, we'll be covering it every step of the way for you. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. 
Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Okay, let's put a wrap on our kind of mid-season awards there and look back at last week's results. Uh, I did not do so great. I so, finally got you. Yeah, you finally like, got me. Here we are in week seven, and I finally get a dubs over you. All right, I only went four and seven. As the games were going on, I was like, oh, these don't look promising for me. Uh, you went a very nice six and five there. Uh, I still have quite a bit of a lead on you there overall i'm at 45 and 40 you're at 40 and 45 but that could change quickly okay uh we both got this one wrong ucf does cover but lose to oklahoma a very spirited game 29 31 yeah they had a two-point conversion to tie that game mm-hmm. man just when you think oklahoma has got it going and ucf's 0 and 3 the depth's going to catch up with them. The travel, the difficulty of week in and week out, losing versus better opponents is going to catch them. They almost get a major trophy with a win at Oklahoma. And thankfully for all of us who live in the state of Florida, they did not because they're insufferable if they get even a single win like that, and they didn't. But yeah, you and I are both on the Oklahoma minus 19 side of that one, which was wrong. All right, South Carolina does not hold up against Missouri. Missouri just handles them 34 to 12. So we did say in the beginning of the season, we looked at the SEC rankings, right? And Missouri was the team we said was a dark horse to finish mm-hmm. second in the SEC. And that Kentucky was a team that was overvalued. I just, I just love hating on Kentucky. It's become like my new favorite football thing. But that has certainly turned out to be true. Even though Missouri has a backloaded schedule, they've obviously performed very well. And you're seeing it now with South Carolina this game, I think, the Florida game, you saw how bad Shane Beamer wanted it at home. He needed that game. That was a pivotal game for him. And now things are just... Gonna... Yeah, the emotional letdown of that game, I wonder how much that plagued South Carolina. And Missouri's a hard place to play, as we always say. But Missouri looks complete. They are not a football team that is going to give you a win. They are good in all three phases. They compete for 60 minutes. And they're going to make it hard on you. And when things go right for them, they can beat probably almost anyone especially these coin flip teams we keep addressing and they hammered south carolina it's a great win by them all right auburn who i never can peg what they're going to do keep it close somehow ole miss still covers at only six and a half but this game was close it's 28 21 ole miss i i have no idea what auburn's going to do week to week they have zero offense somehow they're still in all of these games for the most part but Ole Miss, yeah, it's a good win for them, I guess. Yeah, third, number rank, number 13 ranked Ole Miss. And outside of the Bama game, they've played pretty well in every game they've played. And look, Lane Kiffin, this is what he does, right? This football team is competitive. I think if you're an Ole Miss fan, you want him to stay there forever. You're relevant. You're in the news. 
and you're beating other SEC teams. Uh, Auburn, I think this is the worst they're going to be. I, I do expect Hugh Freeze to turn them around. They've been competitive, which I think of an Auburn fan. I'm feeling somewhat optimistic that once the recruiting comes back, I'm, I've got a competitive team that is very broken, but is still fighting every single play uh, and, and competing until the end. But yeah, Ole Miss, a, a nice a nice season for them thus far. All right, this game I wanted to be so much closer than it ended up being, but Duke goes down to FSU 20 to 38. Close in the first half, Duke is up. They lose their quarterback, Riley Leonard, to injury, and FSU kind of pulls away at the end. Yeah, this is a fake result, I feel like. I mean, Riley Leonard is first and 10 on the 12-yard line going in for more points versus Florida State, and he re-injures the ankle, comes out, and then they didn't even get more than maybe a first down for the entire rest of the game. But more importantly, the whole stadium and every every football player, Duke and Florida State alike, knew that the game was completely different when that occurred. Just knew it. You felt it. And Florida State relaxed, felt like they didn't have pressure anymore. They were going to be able to win this football game. And then I think Duke should get the field goal and 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 try to keep some momentum rather than going for it. But either way, Florida State is doing what they do. They are playing some close games and winning. They're looking like maybe they're going to lose and winning, but they keep winning. And that's obviously a good result for them. Duke, a very game football team but yeah i was certainly rooting as hard as i could for duke to get the w there and unfortunately for them they could not get it done all right utah continues just to own usc they win 34 32 they were up a decent amount for a while usc comes back but can't get the w i mean you i can't say enough good things in the pod this year about kyle whittingham and and i mean uh, utah i mean this is outrageous like they, they find out that you know both of their best players are out for the year which I have serious questions about the ACL rehab going on out in Utah. I don't know if anyone else does, but nowadays most players are getting back between six and seven months. It's going to be a full on year for both of them, uh, both Kuthi and rising. And I don't know. That's a bummer for Utah, but what a great win for them. They'll celebrate that. I thought Kyle Whittingham afterwards was pretty amazing when he had said that, uh, yeah, they got the reigning Heisman trophy winner at quarterback and we've got a, we've got a pig farmer. Yeah. And out there making plays. And uh yeah, I mean he's gotta be I think I think secretly he's probably thinking this is the best coaching job he's ever done. I bet behind closed doors he's thinking this is it. This is probably the peak. I mean, to get what he's getting out of this team is remarkable and extremely competitive packed. Well, they still have a lot of tough games left, by the way. But either way, I mean, great work by Utah. Yeah, USC will be happy to move to the big ten, not have to play Utah anymore. Seriously. Seriously, although they're going to have better teams that await them. I know, but Utah just has their number. Okay, Oklahoma State at West Virginia. I didn't know what to do with this. I think we ended up on the right end of it, though, because Oklahoma State wins 48-34. I guess once they decide to pick a quarterback, they're fine. Yeah, all of a sudden they scored some points, and that was a game that was impossible to predict, but I'll take the lucky result for both of us. All right, TCU at Kansas State. Wow. Uh Kansas State lays it on him, forty-one to three. Kansas State was a six and a half point favorite. TCU was seemingly playing better they football. They're both four and two, and I didn't believe in in TCU, but felt like it'd probably be a close game. And boy, was that a mistake! So, when in doubt, pick Kansas State. It's probably a good rule. I like it. All right, <laughs> rough result for Clemson. Good win for Miami. Miami beats them twenty-eight to twenty. This game was just an ugly game, and at the end, if you saw it, it's overtime. They're going for two, uh, or sorry, they're yeah. They're, did that score right? It's not. It's not right. Twenty eight, twenty six. Either way, 
Miami's going for two in overtime. And the play, or maybe it's fourth and goal, I can't even remember, but the play <laughs> was supposed to be an inside handoff. And Clemson's quarterback kept the ball as though it was a keeper. And Dabo is visibly losing his mind on the sideline, yelling at whoever is around him, like cannot figure out what happened. Said after the game, of course, that was not supposed to happen. And it's just a really bizarre look for Clemson, who had reached a mountaintop and still has a young, seemingly key employee in the head coach there. And to have a, a program now where your quarterback is sort of voiding the most important play call of the game on his own, and then you see him on the sideline looking around for help, like, why did this happen? How did this happen? Try to imagine, like, Nick Saban having that happen or Kirby Smart, where they're like, they don't know why that just happened when the game's in the line. It's just a, just a, it's a hard look for Clemson. This is just not anywhere near the same team it was before. Miami continues to be Miami. Who knows what you're going to get out of them result wise? Half empty stadium for a game like that. But I don't know. I think the downfall of Clemson has been rather remarkable thus far and no, no sign seemingly of turning it around. Yeah, they're in a tough spot right now. We'll see where they go by the end of the year. All right, Washington State keeps it somewhat respectable at Oregon, but Oregon does win 38-24. Yeah, nice bounce back game, I think, for Washington State here. Oregon, I think, very solid, as we've said before. I don't think we've heard the last from them yet. Yeah, I think you know they're going to have to uh, start cooking here at the end of the year to catch Washington. But I think, I mean, they're just as good as Washington is and you know, still have a chance to be in the playoff. And Washington could have taken an L to Arizona State totally. right to the end. They barely score any points. They're at home. So again, in college football, look, these results week to week are anything but guaranteed. Okay. Tennessee, Alabama, Alabama wins 34 to 20. This was n- not that close at the end, but was close throughout at the beginning. Yeah. I mean, Tennessee was up 20 to seven at halftime. Yep. And it looked like maybe they're going to run away with it, hitting big plays, racking up tons of yardage again against an Alabama defense. We saw them do this too last year. And then Bama put the clamp down on the second half, and they could not get it going. Tennessee did the right thing. They kept going for it, kept trying to get it on fourth down, couldn't get it. And ultimately, Bama was able to pull away with a, with a nice victory. And again, this Bama team is finding ways to win. And I think Nick Saban behind closed doors is very satisfied with yeah. the performance this team is giving him. It's not. It's a very flawed team. But they're getting wins, and those they're are a satisfying. solid team. We're just used to the Death Star Alabama who obliterates. Correct, people. they're a regular. Yeah, they're a more normal college football team. Which for Nick Saban, I think again, coaches are going to appreciate when their team has more deficiencies and they're able to win. It's almost more satisfying. I keep waiting for Tennessee to turn the corner here on, you know, the Joe Milton experiment and hand it over to the kid. But maybe they wanted to see if they could pull some more magic against Alabama. But I wonder if the back half of the season we're going to see the freshman. We'll see. All right, Penn State. Talk about a frustrating offensive display, especially for both teams in the first half, but Ohio State eventually puts it together. They win 20-12. to I keep saying I'm not a believer in Penn State, and I'm not. But Ohio State this year, this is a weird Ohio State team, but they are winning, and that does matter. They are winning, but they are not producing a lot of offense. I wish so badly there was a 12-team playoff this season, Alan, because try to handicap this field right now. I mean, it is seemingly so wide open. So for real, buckle up for the rest of this season. I mean, I think it's going to get, I think it's going to get wild, but another good win. It's a good win by Ohio state. Regardless, that was a rock fight. It was physical. It went down to the end, 
but Ohio State was the better team and they got the right result. So Penn State, though, criticism, like, you know, zero explosive plays and Nothing. that was on display. They could not move the ball at any kind of clip down the field. No, couldn't do anything. And that's why I felt like Penn State, their schedule is soft, but they, you know, they haven't been impressive, but they've been winning. Well, and the defense is excellent. And it is excellent. they're going to be in every game because of that. But offensively, they need some spark for sure. All right, you have a few questions here. I have a question. This is B-Red's question okay. that I have on behalf of B-Red. Is, could Lincoln Riley, do you think, win a title at Florida? And the reason that I'm asking this question is obviously because there's some people out there who now think with Lincoln Riley's two losses in a row that perhaps he's overrated. And maybe that's true. But do you think that it's a Lincoln Riley problem at USC? It's also early on. Or do you think Lincoln Riley at a school like Florida where perhaps defense is easier to come by than USC? What do you think in general? Could he win a title at Florida? He could absolutely win a title at Florida. Would he? I don't know. You know, this is two stops in a row where some of the problems that have kind of cropped up during his time as a head coach have continued to just follow him over to USC. And they are unable to field a defense that is competitive. Now you can do that, especially if you're Lincoln Riley and you hand you hire an ace defensive coordinator, but you'd have to up your recruiting in that department as well. So could he recruit at that level, especially defensively? I think that remains to be seen, but certainly he could win a title at Florida. Is he likely to? Probably not, but that's statistically true of everybody. I was going to say, absolutely. Could he? Absolutely. Of course he could. I mean, he's one of the most likely people in the entire country that could do it. Uh, you know, Kirby, Saban, some others, but he'd be right up there in your top, you know, three to seven picks. He's there. And so, yes, answers yes. All right, Quinn Ewers, big news out of Texas. Tough, tough game with Houston. They survive mm-hmm. a game with Houston. Classic Texas over here is out for multiple weeks with an AC joint grade two issue. I myself had a grade three issue. That is no fun. My injury actually was AR's injury. I did not get surgery but I know why AR would get surgery. I lost like 30% of my throw power after that. Um, But Quinn's out for a shorter time period, Alan, but BYU, K-State, the next two games, who is going to be quarterback for Texas? Is Arch Manning, who I believe is still third, I think, on that depth chart, but the fans in Texas all want to see him. Do you think you see Arch? I don't know. I don't know enough about Texas' internal politics to make an answer, but they have another five-star guy Yes, they do. On the depth chart there. So it's not like a guarantee. Um, not a yeah. guarantee. And again, I, th- I think Arch is still third. But either way, keep an eye on that in Texas because the fans seemingly really want Arch. Well, I think if you're a Sark, you know, depending on what you've seen behind the scenes, of course, but that both guys would get a chance to play potentially if they're not the clear starter. I think you almost have to do it. Just, just because the fan base. So follow it. That's why we bring it up. I think you want to follow that in Texas. That's going to be fascinating watching, starting with BYU. All right, Cam Rising, as we mentioned, and Brett Kuthi out for the year um, for Utah. So we'll see if they can keep their high-wire act going, and maybe I mean, they can. It's just hilarious that we spent so much time in August speculating about whether Cam Rising was going to play in Game 1, and he's not going to play at all this year. Which is and also like, how does that happen now? Like they've been game to game, day to day. It's been warming up. He's getting better. He's getting stronger. And well, they I, just decide. I don't know. I guess they're just looking at it. It's like maybe he's back for the last game, but they're just rather roll with what they have. And yeah, it's, again, it's a long, it's a long healing process to me. I'm surprised. All right, SEC roundup. LSU beats Army sixty-two to nothing. 
And Mississippi State <laughs> beats Arkansas in a baseball game 7-3. to Yeah, wow. I mean, the New Mississippi State defense is fine, but to score three points, I think, shows you why they fired their OC. They just couldn't handle it anymore. I think it was a bad hire at the beginning. I was very <laughs> skeptical that it was going to work, and yeah, for sure it did not. No, it did not. And obviously, Mississippi State is one of the worst defenses in the SEC, Allen. So that made it way worse. Way worse. And but yes, I mean, <laughs> I guess there. it's not like it was against an FCS team or something. But yeah, three, point, three points against anybody is kind of bad. Very bad. Very bad. And on top of that, if you look at KJ Jefferson, who was in the tops of the SEC last year in performance, all of his numbers are like way, way off. And their offensive line is is way worse this year than it was last year. Uh, but either way, unsurvivable to have the performances he's had. And Enos is out. All right, Daytona Steve made his debut, pulled the SIG savings, trying to get himself a little healthier here so he can gamble. <laughs> Did not work. Right out of the gate, he takes an L with Iowa minus five versus Minnesota. Now, he probably would have gotten a push. Had there not been a tragically bad call in this game, I'm sure all of you have seen it. If you have not seen it, you can just Google it. But the punt returner with two minutes left is trying to signal to his team to get away from the ball, the classic kind of horizontal arm swinging you see. As he moves over to monitor the situation, he then picks up the ball and takes it to the house. Minnesota, not even for a second, stopped playing. They knew he was not calling for a fair catch. They were all there. Nobody stopped. Nobody waited. They were trying to tackle him. Everybody was blocking. Nobody was confused about this except for an official who decided that he saw a fair catch administered for, which then, of course, Iowa does not have an offense, as you and I both know. I think they gained – this is a real number, by the way. I think they gained two total yards yards in the second half. Is that accurate? I think that's accurate. Two total yards. In the second half, and they did not get it done. They took the drive for three twenty five just went off a cliff. There. Yeah, um, which is really amazing. So that's a, a big loss. Daytona Steve goes down. He would have gotten a push there. He was right about Missouri beating South Carolina, and then he was not right in the parlay. Tennessee and Arkansas wrong. Oregon wrong, and obviously that Iowa game wrong. And the parlay got off to a bad start when the Bills in the one o'clock game took a big fat quick L to the Patriots in a rather surprising result in the NFL over the weekend. All right, two coaching corners for you, Alan. We've got the Texas-Houston game. Uh, Texas was up 21-0 at a certain point in this game, but now it's 21-7, and it's fourth down and six in the second quarter at the Houston 26. Fourth and six in the second quarter at the Houston 26, up 14. They are trying a 43-yard field goal. Instead, Texas fakes it, and they don't get it. Do you like that decision? You know, I don't mind it because that where they are on the field at the Houston 26, you add, you know, 17 yards to that. That's a pretty hefty field goal, depending on your kicker and what you think about him. And this is like the worst possible scenario, right? Obviously, Houston goes down and scores another TD. I don't know. I I don't mind it. Um you know, fourth and six is manageable. If you have a play that you like, go for it. Obviously, I don't like it because they're up 14. And the <laughs> field goal puts them up three scores. Yeah, but you're in the first half. It doesn't matter. If this is Florida, 
do you want Trey Smack kicking a 43-yard field goal to up three scores, or do you just want to go for fourth and six? Well, let's say you don't have Trey Smack, and let's say you have Adam Mahalik. What do you like to do there? Well, I'm going for it every time. But you I don't just think Texas, I don't think Texas has Adam Mahalik. I, I know, but... That's also unfair. Adam, we're sorry. We don't mean to dog you. Like no, that. no, no. But that's, clearly, that's, yes. Well, this their their performance at the beginning of the year was sure. about as... No, it was bad. You're right. You're right. It's bad. That's a good point. I guess then let's put the caveats like we always do. If you do not trust your kicker, then you have to go for it. Because let's say the odds of you making it... This is math, right? Fourth and six, college football, Texas versus Houston, you're probably at 35 40% to get that. And if your kicker's at 20%, then you have to go for it. So there you go. If you're higher than that, will the scores kick in? Kick yeah, back. but you really want to lay that heavily on the real scores in the in the first half? Yeah, I think that should govern all of your point scoring. All decisions. of your point scoring? When it's fourth and six like that? the mat, Well, the math of getting it, which we just said. All right, all right let me give you this. If it's 40% to get it uh, going for it, and it's 40% to kick it, then you should always go for it. Because that offers higher EV because mm-hmm. you can score a touchdown. But if it, you know, 40 35 and kicking it's the 40%, I'm kicking it. It's yeah. higher EV. I, for sure. That's and, I get the, and I get the rule of scores, which always matters. Okay. <laughs> and also momentum in this case, which Houston wound up scoring a touchdown. That game went down to the wire. Yeah. I, if you're Texas, though, you got to not let them do that. But also, they faked the field goal. Yeah, wait, they didn't well, run a play. Well, that's either higher or lower. I don't know. If you trick them right. on it, then all of a sudden that your your expected value maybe goes up if yeah. you have the element of surprise. I suppose a lot of times those don't work out. You're if right. Urban Meyer's doing it, some others, yes. All right, Clemson, Miami, seventeen all, fifty seconds left. Miami had just picked up a first down. They have the ball on their own thirty-eight, and they have one timeout left. The clock temporarily stops to reset the ball. Miami then huddles. They huddle, Allen. 22 glorious, luscious seconds go off the clock before they run a play that ends up in an incompletion, which then they decide it's time to go to overtime. How did you feel about this decision, needing only a field goal to win this game? I would have been losing my mind if my team did this. Losing my mind, screaming at the television. Not much would make me scream at the television. This would make me scream at the television. Yeah, that's horrifically bad. I mean, again, it's it's really a fundamental misunderstanding of what you're doing because let's just pause for a second and think about this just one level deeper. You have the ball on your own 38. If you can gain 30 to 35 yards, you have a chance to kick a field goal as time expires to win the game where if you miss, you still go to overtime. It's first down too. You could turn the ball over and lose the game. Okay, but fast forward to overtime. You have the ball on the 25 of your opponent. You could turn the ball over and lose the game. That result still exists if you have the ball first, right? You still could turn the ball over and lose the game. The only difference is you could score and then your opponent still gets the ball. So when coaches do this stuff, this is coaching out of fear. We've mm. talked about this with Billy before. This is coaching for survival. You have to coach to thrive, and that is a horrific decision. All right, hit us up with some historical patrons here. Let's do it. Start with Matthew Reddish, John Walters, Carson Tulo, Aaron Jeter, Jonathan Levy, Paul Wexler, Phil Bowerman. What's up, man? Caleb Whitfield, Hillary Spiewak, Jared, Jared or Brian Uzdike, Michael. Hello. Ha- yeah, there you go. Michael Hammer, Adam and Ginny, Brett, Jason Johnson, Brad Bell, Dan Dorman, Alexander Chavers, the Chef Gator, Stephen Diaz, Jake Buckles, Achi Jones, Bill Waite, DJ Scratch and Sniff. Smitty, Trevor, Alan Horn, Dr. Jared Moyles, Bill Lewis, LT Carbonell, Carbonell, 
uh, Jean Labassier, Jean Labassier, yes, Jean, Jean, Cody Alsup, Brad, Benjamin Stewart, Joe Kahn, Terry Greenberg, Jordan Mayers, Patrick the Bunny, number one Gator, CJ McRae, Jonathan Leonard, James Smith, the Moore family, Tyle Krask, yep, that's right, Brandon Davis, Johnny Wishbone, Nick Porterfield, EJ, Christian Wayne, Jonathan Weschendel, Weschendel, Weschendel. I'll, I'll jump in on, on some of these for I you. I love that. This are, thank you. Uh, <laughs> uh, Justin Wiedenfeld or Weidenfeld. Sorry, I should have helped you. Derek Newton, John Geiger, Justin Green, MCNK, Brant Fleming, Corey Costello, Joe McCann, Stacy, Carl J. King, Mike Marino, hopefully related to Dan Marino, go Finns, Bobby Cooper, Fearless Leader 7, Eric Scott, Kevin Conroy Scott from overseas. What's up, Kevin? Pete Kelly, uh, Siraj H, Joshua Fowler, Ryan Dickey, Nicholas Dunn, Cody Jordan, Samuel Elliott, Connor McManus, David Lee, Adam White, Jim DeCesaro, or D... Yeah, that's right. Should be right. Yeah, exactly. David... Dupuy. Yeah, Dupuy. See, I paused because I knew what I said last time I had his name, David, and this time Alan saved me. Je suis désolé, mon français, ne pas bon. Chris... Derek Taylor, Constantine, Kyle. H. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Do you want to get the last name on that one? Go for it. I'll I'll even skip that one. Okay, all right. You can go for it, though. You're good at this. Come on, give it a shot. Hatsavasilio. I like, I like it. I like it. <laughs> Kyle Moyles, uh, Jack Zoldos, and John Scott. A lot of great names. That was like the all-name edition there. So that's I appreciate great. you guys challenging. It really makes me want to go back and work on like last name phonetics. I just need to probably spend some time brushing up <laughs> all right a few live reads here ag1 back again as your daily foundational nutritional supplement that supports your entire body's health we first got access to ag1 because they sponsored our podcast and oftentimes what we hear is man that stuff is expensive and it is expensive alan but this is a full fact review for me i'm not reading something they gave me it is not expensive when you actually break down the components of what you're getting so what i'll say about ag1 is if you're interested and having four or five supplements in one. So if you look at what they have component-wise, you think, I already take those things, or I want to take those things, you are actually getting a market price all in one, hence the benefit. But if you're comparing it to just like a greens drink, a one-stop greens drink, it is not the same thing. It will be more expensive. You could have a greens drink on your own, but they are different. So I will say that because I've gotten that question quite a few times. So if it's something you're interested in, you can drink it, Anytime you want during the day, once a day, to give yourself all the nutrients your body needs. It is a comprehensive solution that you can add in. If you want to try this, you can do so by using our special promo code. Go to drinkag1.com slash GNFP. Get yourself some free AG1 vitamin D and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase. That's drinkag1.com slash gnfp links are in the description of the podcast all right we're also back here with Corey amira Corey, we saw your commercial on tv as well looks like you're making the rounds we appreciate that uh it's important to use your bye week correctly as we know we're using our bye week correctly on by giving out mid-season awards and kind of looking at florida's offense and defensive performances and then hopefully addressing our needs and making improvements to the overall plan which gives florida the best chance to win the game on saturday when building a custom home for your family, you also need an experienced leader who can deliver what you want. 
Corey Amira with Amira Custom Homes has this kind of experience building high quality custom homes in Alachua County. He is a second generation contractor who spent his entire life working in construction. And therefore, he has the experience to help you execute the right game plan for your family's custom home. Check out some of his previous custom builds at amiracustomhomes.com. That's A-M-I-R-A customhomes.com. Okay, James. It's that time. It's the world's largest outdoor cocktail party. It's the game in Jacksonville against those dreaded Georgia Bulldogs. They're 7-0, and they're favored by 14.5 against Florida, who's, of course, 5-2. and two. A few facts here about UGA, if you want to look on the bright side. They've only played one quote-unquote ranked team in Kentucky. They had a close call with Auburn, struggled with South Carolina, and was up only 10 versus Fandy in the third quarter. So if you would like to write a narrative that Florida has a chance in this game, there you go. They have not not played the kind of schedule or look the same as they have the last couple of years. Doesn't mean they won't do that on Saturday. But first, but first, it's time for all you big homie culture corner fa- fans. Let's start with that mascot background. Yeah, why don't you why don't you give us this, Alan? Okay. And thanks to Big Homie each and every week who's yeah. spending, I think, more and more time digging deeper into the uh, Yeah, the shout out to corners. Big Homie. It's a lot of fun. He's making apparel, he's doing all kinds of stuff. Okay. The official mascot of the Georgia Bulldogs is Uga Eleven, a live English Bulldog. <laughs> okay. <laughs> like many of the players and coaches, Uga is very susceptible to hip dysplasia, hypothyroidism, and halitosis. Being that these cherry-eyed mucus mutts, the dogs, not the coaches and players, are prone to so many health conditions, Ugga receives the utmost care from a single family that has been tied to the mascot's bloodline since the very beginning. Ugga even resides in a custom-built air-conditioned doghouse during home games. The original Ugga was introduced when Sonny Seiler, an attorney from Savannah, Georgia, and UGA law grad, brought him to the home opener in 1956. The then-head coach asked permission to use the dog as the official mascot after the game, Several versions of Bulldogs, Terriers, etc. predated Ugga up to that point. Siler's family are still the sole caregivers of the Sour Mugs. I don't know if that's a real name or not. Siler himself was cast in three movies that were filmed in Savannah, Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil, The Legend of Bagger Vance, and The Gingerbread Man. The Legend of Bagger Vance. Are these all wow. true facts? I don't know. I mean, I think it's got to be. This seems entirely truthful right now. In 2022, Ugga 10, and by extension all Uggas, were inducted in the Mascot Hall of Fame. Deceased Uggas are interred in a mausoleum near the main entrance of the southwest corner of Sanford Stadium. I don't, I didn't know that. That's very much like what communists do with their rulers. There you go. It's very interesting. Uh, a bronze plaque describing each dog's tenure and including an epitaph is engraved in front of each tomb. Big Homie says that's disturbing. Both Ugga 10 and Siler passed away in 2023. So we've got an. A new Ugga, I guess. Yeah, a new Ugga's there. And wow, they both passed away in the same year. Not, Of course, not his dog, but still. I love it. I love the mascot stories. Really great. The history of the game. Of course, a lot of you know this. If you live in Georgia, you know that Georgia fans incorrectly call this game the Georgia-Florida game, which just (laughs) feels wrong, sounds wrong to anyone who is a Florida fan who grew up in Florida. And Big Homie wants you to know that every time he hears one of these slack-jawed hillbillies say Georgia-Florida, it throws him off. And he's been living in Atlanta now for eight years. So... Sorry for you, big homie, having to endure Atlanta and deal with the Georgia fans during this run that Georgia's on. All right, we have the dispute for when the rivalry started. Was it 1915 or was it 1904, Alan? According to Georgia, it was in 1904. 
A game occurred in Macon, where it was Georgia versus the University of Florida. But the University of Florida, that hopefully all of you as grads of UF would know, was once located in Lake City and was known as the Florida Agricultural College. So this University of Florida, the one we're talking about, does not count this game since the school itself did not really technically exist. Georgia also won that game 52 to nothing, so that likely contributes to the dispute over why Florida does not want to count it. And Georgia does. But rivalry-wise, in the modern era here, Alan, Georgia leads the streak 54-44-2. Or, again, if you ask Georgia, 55 wins, right? Which we're not asking Georgia. So, the Bulldogs rattled off six or seven straight wins, which sent a trend in the place from the jump right from the beginning. So they were 6-0 to start the series. And then since then, this has essentially been a game about streaks. Florida, of course, had run a ton of them. For a lot of our listening group, you either hate Georgia because they were on a significant win streak when you were at Florida, or you think Georgia's no big deal because Florida was on a significant win streak in Florida. Each team boasts the same amount of wins in their longest streak, seven for Florida in 1990-96, and seven for UGA in 41-48, to and Florida with, again, a whole bunch of wins in the 2000s versus Georgia as well. Okay, this is a very robust Culture Corner, we're going to keep going here. Get seven more categories. Okay, before 1930, Florida, Georgia was held in Jacksonville three times, Savannah twice, Tampa once, along with several Georgia home games in Athens. So the disputed one was played in Macon, Georgia. Weird. Uh, Florida Field opened in 1930, and Rivals played in Gainesville for the first time in 1931 in Athens. But from 1933 onward, the game was played in Jacksonville, except for 94-95, while the Gator Bowl was being renovated for the Jacksonville Jaguars. And so in roughly a hundred meetings, the rivalry has been played in Athens or Gainesville, a total of only seven times. That's interesting. That is amazing, right? Yeah. Yeah. So the world's largest outdoor cocktail party loved it. Jacksonville used it officially. However, they dropped it from most official uses in 1988. Um, so, a, you know, they asked them not to, the, the broadcasters not to say it as if that would pre- Include people from drinking before the game. I don't know, but I, I don't know. Just call it that. That's what, that is what it is. That is what it is. You can't stop it now. Every, we're going to keep calling that on yeah. the podcast every year. That's so what it is. Go. All right. Fan reputation. Also this, this, I don't How do you feel about this Alan? Cause I, I didn't know this for a while. Since 2009, the respective student government associations have referred to the game as the war for the oar. And the winning team gets the Okafenoki Ore. The Swamp straddles, the Okafenoki Swamp straddles Florida Georgia State Line, one of the seven natural wonders of Georgia and the largest blackwater swamp in North America. When I first saw someone marching this ore around, I was like, what in the world is that? Do you care at all about this? I don't even know about it, so no, I do not right. care about it. Right, it's not a real thing. That's what I wanted to say. Not a real thing. Sorry to all of you student government aficionados, but you trying, can't just, you can't just make hard. up correct. You can't just make up I something. I guess you can because... That got made up at some point, but... It did, but not in 2009. It's too late for that. So, whatever. Don't put stock into that. All right. <laughs> right hate mail to Alan. Uh, fan reputation. According to Stanford's Children Medicine... <laughs> this is a good one. Uh, strabismus? Yes. Strabismus. A misalignment of the eyes. We have a lot of doctors to listen to this pod. A lot of my friends are doctors. So, if I pronounce any of these medical terms incorrectly, feel free to hit me up. Uh, But essentially, being known as cross-eyed, as it's commonly known, is one of the most common eye problems in children, affecting 4% of children under the the age of 6 in the U.S., so 4%. 
Do you want to guess what this number is in Georgia? A staggering rate of 107%. (laughs) This cannot be true, by the way. Many people believe this is due to the high number of sister wives and uncle husbands rampant throughout the state. In addition to... In addition to being cross-eyed, many Georgia residents also suffer from the illusion that a person is an animal and is still present in modern-day Georgia after a massive rabies outbreak in the early 1960s. It's alleged that the first known patient was a strabismus child who was bitten by a rabid bulldog because, you know, the kid couldn't see the bulldog. That's why he got bit. These tragic circumstances have led to what our cross-eyed barking fan base, obviously they're barking, they're confused, they think they're dogs, that you see at the game in Jacksonville today. The crossroads, pun intended, of two terrible scenarios gives us what we now know as Georgia fandism. A clinical video of the strabismus clinical lycanthropy or Georgia fandism has been attached as an example. Please feel free to post to social media for educational purposes only. So I think it's clear that Big Homie really shines when he gets into his own fictional writing. Man, it's that reads like a real thing. And I loved every minute of it. That's great. <laughs> okay, enough of enough of that, although I thoroughly enjoyed it. A little overview here. The coach of the Georgia Bulldogs is one man named Kirby Smart, who we thought was on an unlit bonfire when he got hired because of the standard set before him. But he has surpassed that. I guess he has the mantle of best coach in America. I don't know if all of you will like to hear that, but I guess it has to be true. Coaching staff. They've had a replacement here, Mike Bobo, former Georgia QB, fired from Auburn in 2021, was an analyst with UGA in 2022. He's been a head coach at Colorado State, former Georgia OC as well. Uh, Not beloved by the fan base as a coach, but there he is. And the DCs are Glenn Schumann and Will Muschamp. They have returned. Okay. The DKI, Danny Kent Index, Significant advantage to UGA on both sides of the ball. No surprise there. Yeah, not surprising. And it's like it's like way higher than anything, of course, we've seen thus far this season. And that is to be expected, obviously. Yep. Okay, the offensive personnel, some turnover here. Carson Beck, the quarterback, 74% completion rate. Throws an 88% catchable rate. That's pretty high. 12 TDs, 4 picks. We got some air yards in here. Well, this is important because yeah. this is going to lead into the weakness that Georgia's offense yeah. has. Right 910 here. air yards, 1793 intended. So that tells you they are missing a mm-hmm. lot of their significant air yard plays. They are not hitting, and that's largely led to the more pedestrian outputs from the offense. Yeah, so you know, not their stellar set of running backs and receivers that they've had in the past. Uh, I don't even know how to say this name. Uh Day one, potentially Edwards, two times the carries of other RBs, um, five point eight yards per attempt. He's he's really nice, but you know they've had they had a long string of like first round picks there. I don't know if that guy's on the roster this year, although Edwards has played well. Uh, wide receiver Dominic Lovett, you know a lot of underneath stuff, five point five four point five yard yards like in his A dot. They got three other receivers who are deeper threats. And no Brock Bowers in this game. I'm sure most of you know that. That is major, major news that we will, of course, talk about more as we get into this breakdown. But that significantly changes how Georgia will play. Right. So, yeah, let's talk about them because, I mean, obviously they are a different team than they were last year. 
with a new OC, new quarterback, you know, a lot of different pieces here for Georgia. And a lot of these numbers are going to match up exactly with what you probably feel about Georgia if you've watched them play at all. So there is some intuitiveness to what you're going to hear. And there's also probably going to be some things here that surprise you, I think, on the upside, given that you're probably thinking, yeah, this seems like a more pedestrian offense. They are 52% pass, 48% run, very typical for unlike Bobo offense. They're number seven in yards per play, so they've been explosive despite missing a ton of potential plays. Number 10 in points per play, number one in third down conversion at a remarkable 59%. That is an incredible number. Number 35 in red zone scoring, so they've had issues as the field's gotten compressed. They're number 22 in yards per rush and number 19 in yards per pass. They are allowing almost no sacks as they're number eight in the country in sacks allowed number 48 in interceptions thrown. So they do not turn the ball over a lot. They have a phenomenal third down conversion rate, but they have been missing on hitting explosive plays, and yet they still have, again, the seventh best yards per play. So that is very interesting. The success rate of Georgia's offense overall, they are seventh. Standard downs, 11th. Passing downs, third. So when they actually get behind the stick, second and seven, third and five, they're doing, they're doing very well. Um, passing plays fifth and running plays 15th. So what should hit you right away is standard down and rushing plays are worse than passing downs and passing plays. This is backwards for a typical Georgia team. And that is in fact true right away, Alan. Let's spend a second talking about their offensive line before I get into some of the numbers they typically have. So this is definitely a less productive offensive line than what we are used to at Georgia. Despite that, the team is still breaking big runs, but they are, they are. I don't want to say controllable, but even teams like Vandy during the game have multiple outright wins on the line of scrimmage. And that is markedly different than what we've seen from previous Georgia teams. It's also why they're not running the ball that well, even though these numbers seem like they are. Keep in mind their schedule. They're really not running it that well, given their schedule. The previous Georgia teams would have had much better numbers with who they face. So I think this is an opening early on is how will Georgia's offensive line fare in this football game? And can Florida exploit what looks to be a weakness for this team? And now with tight end out and Bowers, how much more can Florida exploit them? Here are a few numbers on how they play offense. 36% of the passes are play action. That is very high. 51% involve pre-snap motion. That is very high. 16% are RPOs. That is also pretty high. So it's funny, although you, you know, you really think like, I think Mike Bobo offense, I think boring, I think play action, I think pro style. He's trying to adopt a lot of what is at least on paper, more modern concepts, especially with that RPO number. Uh, So it's, it's a little different perhaps than what he's done in the past. They're hit at the line 38%, which is pretty high for Georgia on running plays. So again, the stuff rate is there. Uh, They will run both zone and gap. They prefer to run zone, but if they're struggling, they'll go to gap. We know Florida struggled versus gap. Their offense has been very consistent versus man defenses, putting up pretty good results, Alan, but they are not explosive versus man defenses, which I think gives the green light to Coach Ham to say, I should play man. I should not fear them beating me deep. Therefore, man's good because they are shredding all zones except for cover four. They've only faced a handful of snaps versus cover four. Something to look into, I think, if you're Florida. Uh, But they are just murdering all the other zones you might play at them. 
61% of their passes are five yards or shorter. And they've been very successful up to 25 air yards. After that, significant struggles connecting on deep balls. And that is a major weakness of this football team. Major weakness. We're going to talk about how to game plan that in a second. Pressure-wise, if you bring pressure versus them, they are shredding all of them. Yeah, they, Whether you bring one, two, or three extra guys, they are murdering you when you bring pressure. Yeah, and they don't allow a lot of pressure regardless. They don't allow a lot of pressure. And in fact, quite interestingly, here's your stat, Alan. They allow a similar pressure rate if three guys are rushing versus a blitz, which tells you they're, they're ready for it and they're picking it up very well. And if you're bringing three oftentimes, you might be able to get home better uh, than if you are not. And that's often because they're spreading you out. They might be empty, something like that. But something to keep a note on there. Their pressure rate is 17%. That is 10th best in the country. If you're wondering where UF is in that, UF is 138th in the country. Very big difference in how often they're getting pressured. But despite all these numbers, like we said, on film, here are the takeaways. And you get the impression this this offense can be had, which we've seen that happen to them. Other scoring in the 20s, you look at the Auburn game, bogged down for a long period of time. South Carolina game, bogged down for a long period of time. And they're generally their own worst enemy. They're generally missing plays they have in front of them. But there are some takeaways I think that matter. One, this team utilizes an excellent quick game. Carson Beck has a great zero drop game. They have a great feel for attacking east-west or even quick inside routes that they will hit immediately. So if you are wrong pre-snap, which Florida only really ever is if they mess up their own assignments, they will make you pay. Uh, Beck has a plus arm. He will, however, make mistakes as he's still inexperienced and he does lock onto his first receiver. So much of being successful versus this team is taking away that first look that he has and then getting any kind of pressure to move him off the spot. This team runs a ton of in-breaking routes, which makes sense because it was featuring their tight end. Now, what are they going to do without him? Without the threat of him running an in-breaking route or an out-breaking route or creating that space, I'm not exactly sure, but that's been a feature of this offense. They also run excellent route combos to affect common defensive matching principles. So if they line up in a stack set and they know teams typically will either east-west that or they'll play uh, high-low or they know the rules, there's multiple concepts you can use, they will run routes to confuse the rules that defense coordinator likes to use especially teams that like to east-west it. And there's lots of evidence on film for this. So they're going to run a route that makes you think, okay, I'm picking up the number one receiver because he broke in, only to then switch that on you where they complete some easy passes. Uh, lots of out routes on third down. Something I think Florida should look for. It's a straight one-on-one, seven, eight-yard out route. Not a lot of open wide receivers on film. That's probably my biggest takeaway here. When you roll the film on them, unlike South Carolina, which we said, look, a lot of these receivers are open. They do not have a lot of open receivers on their routes. There might be one Sometimes at most two, but these are not wide open guys. These are not guys who necessarily scare you. You're not scared. And they're also conceptually not creating dynamic open receivers, which is a good thing for Florida. Uh, in the red zone, look for look for Georgia to expect man-to-man. And when they get it, to attempt to run a very simple concept that I'm sure they will try to use on Florida because of how Florida passes off some of these man concepts, where essentially you send your number one receiver in motion. He slams on the brakes sending his trail defender kind of still running to then snap the ball and hit a very easy, like a fade route or something like that. They put it on film multiple times this year. It's worked every time they've done it. I expect them to utilize that against Florida as well. Again, in large part because Florida sometimes covers that man where they follow across and sometimes they switch to the safety. We have seen Florida on film this year, Alan, when they've gone to switch to the safety, have that other defender sometimes auto default to going back to becoming safety, 
having a safety come down or vice versa. And that's more than enough time for them to execute this concept. So I think Coach Ham will have to be ready for that. So, so yeah, real quick. That's I'm, a scouting report. Plethora of numbers and things there for yeah, you. Yeah, so I think, you know, at the tight end position, they've recruited well there. They have some guys who have done some things for them. Obviously, nobody's in Brock Bauer's stratosphere, but Oscar Delp and other guys have been productive for them when he hasn't been on the field. So I don't think they're going to completely go away from that. You just lose some of the kind of, you know, trickeration that they use in, you know, handing him the ball or doing different things that most tight ends wouldn't be able to do. So it's definitely a minus for them, but that doesn't mean they don't have any tight ends that they're going to deploy. No, they do. They have some, but again, Bowers is a different kind of sure. guy. And also just his route running feel for the game, the the connection he had with, with Beck. I mean, he had a ton of targets, as you mentioned, on 52 targets already. We've looked at most teams this season, and really only Xavier Leggett of South Carolina has had that many targets of, of a guy we've seen. So just heavily, heavily targeted guy. So with that, then, what should Florida's game plan be? How do we essentially attack this offense? Well, part of the problem here of what's going to happen in this game is some of the things Florida's been weak at, Georgia has been good at. And this is not necessarily running the football. It's different than that. Largely, their offense was designed to attack linebackers, which makes sense because that's what your tight end would largely be attacking, or safeties who come down to guard your tight end. It's a lot of east-west attacking with those interior routes we talked about. Florida has clearly put on film this year that we have struggled to get those interior assignments right at times. We largely have not faced teams that have punished us for this as much as they could have. We've dodged some bullets, so to speak. Without Bowers in the lineup, though, Florida does not have to fear anyone on Georgia's roster specifically, if that makes sense. They don't have another lead guy that they really rely on. What does this mean? I think Coach Ham's game plan should be to, first of all, execute your assignment coming out of the bye week, right? Florida needs to clean up those issues with pre-snap formation shifts, with stack sets, with going from twins to three by one, all the things that they've been struggling with to get right. We need to get those things right. That's football by alignment. And tactic-wise, I think would be wise to mix in man and cover four. So basically a mixture of safe on the back end with aggressive up front at the right times, right? Based upon how what the down and distance scenario is, what's happening with this play, mix in the type of defense Georgia has struggled with because they do not complete vertical passes well, along with really shutting down that quick game east-west. Now, one of the best things about Coach Ham is that he generally does not let teams have that east-west game. We've highlighted it all year long. It was one of the worst things about Grantham and Tony last year is it was free yards to teams that Florida has not been allowing them to get. So if Florida does what I expect them to do, which is to continue to take away the East-West game, Georgia will have to play a different style passing game than they have largely had to this season. That could that could potentially allow Florida to get several stops in this game versus, again, a Georgia offense that is coming and missing their best overall receiver as a tight end and is not running the ball spectacularly well. So there are ways here I think Coach Ham can feel like he can influence this game rather than just surviving Georgia's offense, if you will. Yeah, they're interesting. You watch them and you get the feel that they really haven't quite figured it out. They're good, but they're not dominant. So, yes, this isn't like an inept Georgia offense. It's also not the juggernaut of an offense that really quietly was dominating people last year, right? So all the stars were on defense. So that Georgia offense looked really great at times, and they've, they've definitely taken a step back. They can be had, but obviously you look at their their numbers, 
They're an effective offense. They're they can do things to hurt you. Yeah, very effective. That's a takeaway. Is although they're less, had they hit probably even just fifteen percent more of some of these deep passes that are often open, the offense looks much different than it has looked. But we're also halfway through the season. They have not hit them. Florida's going to offer a stiffer challenge than any team they've faced yet, at least in theory. We still have a defense that we're not necessarily sure which tail we're going to get, positive or negative. But assuming we get even an average result out of Florida's defense, that will create problems for Georgia's offense. All right, let's talk about their defense a little bit. They put a ton of guys in the NFL over the last three years. Still a ton of talent, but just less well-known currently and missing some of the maybe star power that they've had in the past years. Long defensive line, Warren Brinson, Michael Williams. Uh, Williams leading in pressures. So linebacker, another really top-notch recruit, Smail Munden, generating most of the pressure for the D. Um, and they have some good corners. Tyke Smith, really all their top corners are excellent in coverage. Malachi Starks at safety. It's kind of a star for them. And then you know they play another guy named Dan Jackson, who's a former walk-on, I believe, but is still a very effective player for them, but maybe can be attacked via the pass. So not a star-studded unit yet but a lot of guys who can play still very talented and have been really effective this year for the most part. Yeah. Quality unit here. And you're going to like some of the numbers you hear. And this is why covering success rate is nice. When we get there scattering report wise um, opponent yards per play, their ninth points per play, their 12th opponent, third down conversion, their second. Yikes. So pretty amazing. A lot of Georgia's success can be boiled down to the third down conversion on both sides of the Mm -hmm. ball. They are, however, 75th in opponent red zone scoring. So if you can get in the red zone against them, you can score. They're 27th in opponent's yards per rush. That's not a typical Georgia number. I'm sure that's driving Kirby Smart crazy, right? Normally they're number one. They're number three in opponent's yards per point and number 95 in sacks, which is a shocking number for a Georgia defense. Shocking number number 19 in INTs. So these are some different numbers than what we've seen out of a Georgia defense, Allen, in large part because that defensive line is not nearly as disruptive as we have seen in the past. Success rate-wise, they're 12th overall, low for Georgia. Standard downs, 22nd. Florida is best on the standard downs. There's something to look forward. Passing downs, they're fifth. Florida obviously not good at passing downs on offense. And then rushing plays, they're 30th. Passing plays, they're ninth. So opportunities, perhaps, for Florida to gain some yards against this defense. Naturally, Georgia plays man 36% of the time, and they play it exceptionally well. Just a 37% completion rate and a 36.6 passer rating in man coverage. They are outstanding at it. They run multiple zones. They are not quite as good in zone as they are in man. And cover two has been an issue for them. They don't play it very often. I'm not sure Florida's going to put them into a cover two look, but you know when you can put teams into a cover two look often, is if you do have a tight end who is useful and solid. So Florida may be able to get a look or two in that. Uh, They bring pressure 32% of the time. Here's a fun fact for you. They're not doing it successfully. In fact, when they're bringing pressure, they're getting a negative result compared to when they don't bring pressure. Yeah, I think it's because they're better on the back end and they leave those guys in coverage. They're better off. That's exactly right. So when they're trying to bring something not doing well, they generate pressure 27% of the time. However, that should be higher if they were getting pressure when they brought pressure. So not an amazing pressure rate number there. Georgia's defense has also struggled versus pre-snap motion and play-action passing. Not surprising. Georgia and Florida's defenses are basically exactly the same. 
That's exactly what Coach Ham wants to run. They're split safety defenses. They're very complicated. There are tons of rules with how they play every type of set. Two by two, three by one. Where's the running back? Where's the tight end? Where's the nub tight end? Where are you at? How do you switch the roles if a guy motions? Who's playing inside? Who's playing outside? Where's the safety covering? Is he coming down? Is he in run fit? There's so many things those players have to factor in. It's what makes it sort of a high-functioning engine when it works, but it also makes it susceptible to motion. And so Florida runs a lot of pre-snap motion. A lot of times Florida's pre-snap motion, though, is rather predictable. What we saw last game, it was not. So Florida would be certainly wise, Alan, to take advantage of that to create some mismatches because this defense has been hurt on play action passing and Florida is a bellwether play action passing team. So there are some things that line up here again, potentially in Florida's favor to be able to move the ball against this Georgia team. So what's the game plan in summation? Georgia's D line is not producing like a typical Georgia line. Therefore they are relying on their excellent back seven to make a lot of their tackles, including their safeties and their corners Two of their top tacklers. One's a safety, one's a corner that does give you play action pass opportunities. If you're having to bring a safety in the box to tackle, or you're going to bring a corner and a corner blitz and you're timing an RPO or play action pass, you can hit them. You also can run on this team with some success. It's not a Georgia team where you're going to get 30 yards against them. You can run with some success But ultimately, I think Florida's game plan has to be this. You have to play the matchups correctly when you get man defense, which you're going to get. And that correct target, Allen, are their linebackers. The only real obvious chink in the Georgia armor on defense is their linebackers have been majorly struggling to cover. They've been giving up tons of plays. And then Dan Jackson, if he's in at safety, is the weakest back-end coverage guy. But the linebackers, both of them, are giving up passing plays at a very high rate. Florida would do well to take advantage of those matchups, whether it be Arliss, who's going to get some matchups that way, or it's a running back. And we've seen Florida not necessarily be super aggressive with a running back. We saw flashes of it versus South Carolina. This would be the game for me, where if I'm Florida's offensive staff, I'm saying this is the game to design my best running back versus linebacker man-to-man plays because I think that is where Georgia is vulnerable. Very interesting matchup here. I think Florida has a chance to be successful, whether they can actually pull it off. They can keep Georgia from dominating them pressure-wise. I don't know. Uh, Georgia hasn't been great at producing, or as great at producing pressure. Florida is great at giving up pressure, though. So That's the thing, is everyone's getting pressure on yeah. Florida, whether they're good at it or not. Okay. Special teams advantage UGA, penalties significant advantage UGA. Turnover margin and time possession is a push. I don't know that we have any more uh, injury info. We'll see if we get Kingsley back after the bye week. Hopefully everyone is healthy. ETN is back. We'll see. Um, yes, obviously Brock Bowers being out is the headline here. Yeah, major headline. And again, that major, major headline. I think of all the teams that... Florida is playing, taking out a non-quarterback on offense, this would have been the one that you would have said would impact the result of the of the unit the most. That's how important Bowers was to this Georgia offense. And Florida gets them very importantly in the very first game without him, which is crucial. They haven't had time to quite figure out what is their identity. That's the ideal time to catch them. So there are opportunities in this game for Florida. Make no mistake about it. Not the same Georgia team. Florida potentially riding a one-game momentum burst with some upside to the long run for their football team. I think there's 
I think the players will believe when they watch this team on film and the coaches will instill the belief they can win this game because they can. They're not facing a juggernaut here, but they are facing a far more talented team. And so therefore, I think this game is something that, again, Florida can be successful in. With that, let's get to our keys to the game, Alan. You're up first. Let's start with the offense. So this is a game for me about keeping Mertz clean. We haven't done that very well. He's taking a ton of hits. I don't know if he can keep going like this. They're going to have to limit the number of times he gets hit. I'll reduce that down just to the sack number. If they can be three sacks or less, I think that is significant. And I'll throw another one on top of there. ETN needs to have a big game here to take some pressure off what they're going to be doing. I think they're going to drive back and throw it a ton. I don't know if they'll be successful, but I think that's what it's going to have to do. So over 100 yards for him to win this game. 100 yards rushing or 100 all-purpose? Rushing. Okay, nice. What do you got for defense? Defensively, I mean, I think you kind of already hinted at this. It's going to be third down conversion. Can you keep them, you know, sub 40 third down conversions? If they're going to complete at that pace, if they're going to be near 60%, we're going to lose. Absolutely. I like that. All right. Sub 40 on third down conversions. So for offense, for me, I'm going to have running back catches. And it can be any running backs. My running back catches, I'm going to want to see at Does least. Does this include Trey coming out of the backfield? No, it's not. I'm not going to count any jet sweep pop pass or anything like that. Well, they have put but him in the backfield. I will count, time. yes. If he, if he lines up as a running back or in the backfield like a split back, I'm going to count that. But I'm not going to count like an orbit motion or a jet sweep because that is not what we're talking about. But essentially, I'm talking about a man-to-man matchup where we're man. It's a running back versus a linebacker. I want to see seven catches. And I want to see 50 yards of production. I think if Florida gets that, that's going to mean that they're largely moving the chains enough against Georgia to give themselves a chance to win. Interesting. And I'm going to go with just that stat because I think based upon film, Florida's going to need to be able to do that. All right, secondarily on defense, I love your third down conversions look here. I think it's going to be twofold. One key to the game is going to be can Georgia just miss a few plays they have, which historically in the Florida-Georgia game has allowed Florida to win when they were the inferior team. The history of Georgia tight ends and other players dropping passes. Dropping passes. And I think that will matter this year. I'm not going to put that as a stat per se, but I think that needs to happen a little bit. Uh, something that the defense hopefully can control a little bit more is they, they, they have to absolutely limit Georgia's running game. All bets are off if Georgia is able to run the football. Sure. Then this offense is going to kill Florida. The, the linebackers are going to be beat. They're going to suck us in. They're going to have the routes they want to hit over the top. Everything that they want to run is going to work. And we cannot allow them to run the football at a significant clip. So I don't have to go with their rushing yards being less than 120. Okay. And I think if that happens, this could be a close football game. If they are able to do what they want to do rushing the football, which they largely have not been able to do this season, but Florida's given it up, South Carolina and Kentucky, that will fundamentally alter what happens in this game. So therefore, I think a lot of Florida's matchups across the board are pretty good. I think they like them. But this is the one that will derail the bus more than any other one. All right, prediction time. You get to go first. All right, so I think that the part of the problem of this game for me is Billy really does want to build a Georgia-like program, which means it's a similar style fighting a similar style. Now, Florida's offense, in theory, is quite different from how Bobo goes about it in some regards, but also quite similar in others. Heavy play action, a lot of tight end personnel, a lot of max blocking, max protecting. You want to run the football, you mean physical. Georgia is just further along in that department than Florida is. It just is the way that it is. I think it's really hard to beat a similar style when you're not as talented as they are. But I do feel like there's opportunity for Florida to win. I'm not going to pick Florida to win this game. We're just not, I think, ready for this yet. But I will say this. If Florida does win, I will not be surprised at all. 
Previous years we've talked about this game would be shocking if Florida won. Not this year. I can create paths for Florida to get there, but there's just too many other paths where they're just going to come up short, whether it's a close game or it's a 10-point game, whatever the case may be. Uh, And I don't think Florida's quite ready for that. I hope, though, that Florida gets a better defensive performance away from the swamp here. And if they do, I think this game will be close. However, I think Florida does lose this game. I think we lose by a closer score than what the experts think. I'm going to go Georgia 27 and Florida 20. Okay. I agree that Florida has chances to win this game. I think if you play it out 100 times, Florida maybe wins 20 to 25 of them rather than the slim like 5 to 10 that it felt like in other years. I feel like this game is going to slip away late that there's going to be a turnover or something that really presses Georgia's advantage. It makes Florida play left-handed too much. I'm going to go 33-20, Georgia. All right, so we both have that 20-point 20, that 20 score. Yeah, you know, I, I kind of thought well, Florida could score higher this, Georgia could score lower. I've seen a 20-27 to 27 game. If that how it shakes out for you, then, you know, one big play flips that, and all of a sudden you're, you're tied or something here. Um I think Florida keeps it close in the first half and just kind of loses its grip on the game as it goes, that Georgia tightens the screws to them. I, I don't know. I I don't have confidence that Florida's going to win, but I am hopeful that it could win. And uh, I think that's as enough as I can get there right now. Yeah, I think so. And again, the film backs that up, the data backs that up. This could be a very competitive game, but the reality is Georgia's floor their worst performance is still quite a bit higher than Florida's worst performance. And and on both sides of the ball, Florida has been prone to disappearing for entire halves. And you cannot do that against Georgia and win the football game. If Florida disappears for the first half on offense, they will be chasing the game significantly. If they disappear the first half on defense, they will give up multiple scores and be chasing the game against a better opponent. So that's the fear. I think all of us intuitively know with Florida if you could just give me the average result and remove those tail results, I think this game would be very close, but we can't. We have to account for the tail results. They're real. They've been there. We've yet to play a complete game on both sides of the ball. Hard to imagine you're going to do it now versus the best opponent you've played, but it could happen, and that could lead to a Florida win. Uh, So I'm hopeful that Florida has a chance to win this game late, but I'm realistic and that we're not quite there yet. There's not enough there yet. Right, so if Florida, they've been Jekyll and Hyde on offense and defense. They haven't played the same. If they could play a high-end offensive game and a high-end defensive game at the same time, they could certainly beat this Georgia team and you know look really good doing it, I think. But to expect that, I think when we haven't seen it yet, would be a little foolish. Yeah, it's always it's always difficult, right? To expect your peak performance in something as a team, whether you're playing or you are watching and you've been highly erratic up until then is, is generally not wise. You're better off expecting your, your median and realizing you're probably going to have some variance and then trying to win the game accordingly. And that's where this Georgia team can help Florida. They have been their own worst enemy at times with inconsistent play. And that's why we said, if, I wonder if, if they've they been a little passes, bored too, could be too, you know, with Kentucky, they were dialed in. But again, Kentucky's a bad matchup for them. Kentucky does not play the way Florida does. Kentucky sits back in that static zone and on film, much to the joy of me, Alan, because I can't stand Kentucky's stupid defense. 
Georgia took advantage of them in every way you possibly could with their quick game. All the stuff we talk about. They're in cover three. Their receivers will literally run until the cover three defender opened his hips and they'd stop, bam, hitch route. I mean, they were just killing them on all the concepts Kentucky runs. Florida doesn't run that stuff, at least not from what we've seen. Uh, and they're not playing Kentucky. So it's reason to believe that we could make it hard for Georgia, but we thought we were going to make it really hard for Kentucky's offense and they ran all over us. Mm-hmm. We thought we were going to make it hard for Spencer Rattler because they couldn't run on us and they ran all over us. How could I possibly say I have any idea what's going to happen with a much more talented Georgia team that has been consistent? I can't, but I'm hopeful. So that's the thought. I'm hopeful. I feel better about this game than previous Florida-Georgia games. This is a winnable game. Florida could win this game, and I wouldn't even be surprised. But can we get a peak performance when we need it most? And if we can, then the top's going to blow off this rebuild, and you're going to see steam building among Skater Nation like, you will not believe. That's awesome. So hopefully that happens. All right, week nine slate. There are other games occurring this week for those of us that are only going to pinch into Florida, Georgia. Number six, Oklahoma, favored by 10 on the road against Kansas. Is this a bounce back game for Oklahoma or do you think they continue to struggle here? I'll take them. Kansas has been all over the place for them, for me. I love them, but they're a little too erratic for me to take them. I like Oklahoma in this spot here. If Oklahoma is what they're supposed to be, this is the game where you get right after surviving. You're living on grace and borrowed time to get yourself right and win convincingly on the road. BYU at number seven, Texas. Texas still favored by 17 and a half, despite the fact that BYU's game competition here. Yeah, I'll take BYU here. That's a pretty big number. I like BYU here as well, just because of the quarterback questions and fan unrest. I think Texas fans are always nervous that they're going to collapse. Will this be the time? We'll find out. South Carolina on the road at AM again. Pause in a moment of silence for South Carolina's schedule, which is just ludicrous. I mean, go back and look at their schedule. It is un it's really unbelievable, Alan. AM favored by 14 in this game, which I think is partially a nod to the fact that Vegas is seeing the wheels fall off the South Carolina right, team. Right, for sure. I was gonna say I don't trust either of these two teams, but with South Carolina, what they showed last week, I can't really predict them to keep it close so i guess i have to go a and m but if you we show back up here on monday and you're like south carolina won i would not be surprised because a and m is not trustworthy either yeah two untrustable teams 14 feels too big given what AM does but i just think that again south carolina i think is physically exhausted they're beat up i think their season is beyond completely yeah, over. Florida took their souls there and i'm just not sure what's left for them but it is sec football and anything can happen all right west virginia on the road at ucf ucf favored by seven i love we're just picking ucf each week here all right i'll take west virginia here just because I don't like UCF giving up points to anybody. Yeah, a touchdown favorite over a West Virginia team that's been pretty game. I'm going to go UCF, though, just because I feel like they're riding probably as high as they've been riding all year. They get a home game, a chance, I think, to get their first conference win. This might be the spot. Number 20, Duke, at number 18, Louisville. Good luck projecting this one. <laughs> Louisville favored by four. Yeah, two feel-good stories. I have no idea whether Lennon's going to play in this game. I assume that he will not, but I have not looked that up. And for that, I'll take Louisville. Yeah, Leonard wanted to get back in the game for sure. Uh, he did not want to not play, but they didn't let him back in. His ankle is still going to limit him significantly. He was not passing the ball well in that Duke game, but he at least was dangerous enough that he could he could get it going at a certain point in time. I think Louisville at home obviously plays very well there. They, they sense a weakened Duke team here. I'm going to take Louisville. 
All right, USC, number 24 USC, favored by 10 on the road at Cal. Is Caleb Williams going to sit out the rest of the season? Are they, uh, just, are they mailing it in? What are they doing? I don't I don't like USC giving up points anyway because every game has been close, but Cal has been bad. So I have to go USC here. I'm going USC here as well. Look, I think this is where Lincoln Riley gets it done. He's not going to lose three in a row. I don't think he's going to win. I don't think he's going to have this one be close. I think that defense has major issues, but to your point, I think there's enough here to get it right. Also, the talk about... Caleb Williams sitting out the rest of the year because he has nothing to play for is so frustrating to me. Because if we want to play Deeply. that, if we want to play that narrative out to any other sport, well, then why are we not applying that to the New York Football Giants who won a football game yesterday? Or let's go through any of the NFL teams that aren't very good. Why are all of their players out there playing as hard as they can each week? Oh, because they're on contract. Well, then how broken is college football, which we keep revisiting, Alan? That guys are suggesting this guy's quote nothing to play for. He's got a roster of other dudes on his team. He gets one college experience. It drives me insane. That's even a thought in general. But it's going to be a thought, and I'm sure at some point in time, someone's going to do it like him in the middle of the season because until you have contracts, until you have scenarios where you can reduce someone's benefits for not playing, it's the way that it is. But man, it just seems crazy to kind of get to that point where you have two losses and you're like, I'm quitting on the rest of the season. Well, it's weird because... If it's only a national title or Heisman that's worth playing for, then ninety eight percent of nothing to play higher, for. Ninety nine percent of yeah, people have no nothing to play for. Nothing to play for. Nothing to do. It's really okay. sad. All right, number twenty one, Tennessee at Kentucky. Tennessee favored by just three and a half. Yeah, this is probably gonna be closer than we think it should be. Vegas usually knows something's up, but I'll take Tennessee here. Yeah, I'm taking Tennessee here as well. I mean, I just feel like this Kentucky team, of course, isn't very good. And I think Tennessee's team is what they are, you know, roughly 20 to 25th. That should be a win worth worth more than three and a half. Colorado at number 23, UCLA. UCLA favored by 17. That feels healthy. One. I don't know. This Colorado team is obviously all over the place. We've picked them every week, which was kind of crazy when you think about how bad they were last year. But, oh, man, I don't know. I feel like I'm just going to get screwed either way here. Um, I'll go. <laughs> I guess I'll go UCLA. I don't know. Give me Coach Prime here, coming off a bye, okay. fired up, the world doubting him, just to get inside that 17. All right, number 11, Oregon State, favored by three and a half on the road against Arizona. This is the quality of the Pac-12. Three and a half on the road at Arizona here. Yeah, or Arizona is super frisky, and if this number was any higher, I would certainly take them, but at three and a half, I think I'll stick with Oregon State. I'll stick with Oregon State, too. They're a much better home team than road team, which largely plays into this number, but I'm with you. Number eight, Oregon, favored by only six. This line shocks me. Talk yeah. about Vegas knowing at Utah. This feels fishy to me. I mean, Utah's great at home, obviously, but Oregon under seven, please. Yeah, I'm taking Oregon here. I know that Utah's great at home, but I don't care anymore. I also think there might be a little bit of an emotional letdown for this Utah team. There is there is no longer like your your superheroes. You're not they're not coming. They're not coming to help you anymore. You're on the beach, you're fighting the battle, and now you know that like the planes are not coming to rescue you. Hmm. And do you bunker down and say, forget it, I'm going to handle this on my own? Or do you sort of say, oh no, we were holding out as long as we could, and now we face a really solid football team we need help with. So I'm going to go with Oregon on that one. That's the slate for week nine, Daytona Steve. His funds started at 200 bucks with the money he saved on those SIGs. He's down to 189 just an $11 loss. Uh, and and back alive at the track. Obviously, he told me he had a good week at the track. Bet on a few horses based upon their their pre race habits. 
got the funds back up in case these funds go down. So he's feeling especially frisky this week. And he's feeling so frisky, Allen, that he has Florida 14 and a half against Georgia for a $30 bet there. He's taking the points. Well, we both took the points. We both took the points. So, so far, we like what Tennessee is doing. He's got USC favored by 11, not 10, but I like the USC pick. Houston by 17. South Carolina with plus 14. Kansas plus 10. Utah plus 7. FSU money line. Auburn money line. Ohio State money line. So one favorite, four dogs, three money lines, $5 to win. They can go ahead and kiss those $5 goodbye. 25 right there. And Alan says, Daytona Steve, forget it. But either way, he's back on the parlay train trying to get that money back up. Right now, Alan, let's revisit the schedule. All right. So back half of the schedule, we like to do this during the bye week. We kind of make our predictions, do our schedule walkthrough. What do we think about that now, halfway through the season? So we're going to pick, repick Georgia, Arkansas, LSU, Missouri, and Florida State. We already both picked losses to Georgia um, coming up this weekend. And we both picked wins against Arkansas. Are you sticking with a win? Are we at this point now? We're sticking yeah. with it. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm sticking with a win. I mean, the this is that is it, as you said. Like, that's the game where there's not going to be an explanation unless Florida takes a bunch of injuries this week against Georgia. Like, you, you can't lose that game anymore. So it's got to be a win. I agree. Okay, LSU on the road. We both predicted L's. LSU has been kind of all over the place. I I thought they were overvalued to start the year. I've been right about that, but still on the road. Florida's been terrible on the road for the most part, so I cannot give us a win there. Are you sticking with loss? I am taking a loss there. I think that it's just too much offense for us, I think, in that scenario. Their defense is weak, which could lead to a very interesting result, but on the road too much Well, I think offense, it will be weird, tough. but yeah, it could be. Loss. It could be. At this point, not knowing what this Georgia game looks like, loss. All right, Missouri, we both picked L's. I, you know, for me, I think we're always going to lose at Missouri, especially to this Missouri team. A win would be really nice, but I'm going to stick with an L for sure. Same thing, not knowing how we look against Georgia, which is a neutral game, and how Missouri's been playing. I have to stick with a loss there too, but any results that flip some of the script and keep us going in the right direction – that could change, but for right now, loss. Either of those would be a great win. Yeah, a road win of magnitude to either one of those teams. I mean, you're looking at LSU, who's who's going to be in contention still for the West, and the Missouri, of course, is in the thick of it here for the East. All right, the last one here, Florida State. We both actually predicted a win before the season. Are you sticking with a win? I'm going to stick with a win. Look, wow. I, I look at this Florida State team week in and week out, and they are a, a good football team. They are not a great football team. Florida at times has played like a great football team. And I think one great half of football, which we saw Florida get versus Tennessee in the swamp could be enough to beat a Florida state team. I'm not naive enough to believe we're going to play one full game based on what we've seen so far of good football. But I think that could be enough again at home to beat a Florida state team that is imperfect in their own regard. Uh, I'm going to stick with the win there, man. I will just for kicks there. I, the vibes are telling me pick against Florida state there. We'll see when we get up close to it after the Missouri game, whether we want to stick. Yeah, with we'll know. I mean, this is the thing now we're picking on now, but I think sure. picking now is even what I've seen imperfection wise. 
I have reason to believe at home that could be a dubs. So that would have Florida finishing two and three down the stretch. And I think everyone would take that. Yeah, we'd be at seven and five, which matches. So essentially, we kept our predictions the same to match what we thought would happen preseason. Yeah. And, you know, you were kind of hopeful that maybe, you know, one of those teams would look worse. And it does in Arkansas because every one of those games felt like oof. And two wins on the back half felt kind of generous. So it's still feels generous it's still it's, like, it's still it's still generous like yep. vegas is gonna have us dog georgia dog lsu dog missouri dog florida state and maybe significantly so yeah could be i don't i mean no we'll see i, I don't think it's gonna be more than missouri is gonna be probably three and a half four maybe florida state might be seven arkansas is gonna be favored lsu might be seven eight so not nothing horrible i feel like well we'll see how we play the next couple weeks well yeah but. and if georgia beats us by 30 it'll drop but i don't you know you never know. It's college football. That's why this is such a fun show because we can't know. You don't know. None of us know. We're just opining. But yes, if you gave me two and three right now, I would take it. Um, I mean, I, I would too. Seven and five is again for this year a win. It's, it's also enough. above it's the enough. Vegas number. Again, it keeps the trains on the tracks. You and if you beat Florida State to win, win out when they're yes. probably ACC champs, you finish with a feather in your cap in the state. Yes, and you feel great about going into the offseason. The recruiting should hold at that point. You're riding into year three, which is what you want. Yes. Okay. Let's revisit our playoff picks. For a refresher, I had Georgia. Check. Looks pretty good. Michigan. Looks pretty good. Clemson. That looks stupid. And Alabama. That That's fighting chance right there. Two SEC teams. You had Georgia. Looks pretty good. Michigan. Looks pretty good. USC. Wah, 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 wah. Clemson. Wah, 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 wah. So we're going to give us a chance here to revisit our picks. Who would you like to replace, presumably, any one of these teams with? Who are you going with? I'm going to stay with Georgia and Michigan. It feels like they are the favorites in those two conferences. I do think the Pac-12 is going to get somebody in, right? So my pick was USC, but that was more of a placeholder. And I'm actually going to take Oregon because I think they're probably, over the long haul, the better team. And, man, that four spot is a Total wild card. Are you looking at Ohio State? Are you looking at a random ACC team? Because we just predicted maybe that FSU is going to take an L in the Florida game. They've been close to losing a ton. I I have no good feel for this. Is there a Big 12 team? So does Texas or Oklahoma pull it out? I'm going to go way off the board here and go Texas. Wow. Wow. Okay, I'm also going to go with Oregon. This is the year of Pac-12. I think they are the best Pac-12 team. I want Washington to make it. I think they're a, a I really love them too. sensationally fun story. I just don't think they're as good as Oregon. I think Oregon is a better football team, even though Washington beat them. I hear you. Washington won. I get it. One game scenario. It was on the road, and basically they had the chance they convert Multiple chances. I think they're very even. Yes. If, if Washington makes it, that's not a surprise to me. Correct, correct. Either way, I'm there. And then I am going to go opposite of you, and I'm going to take Oklahoma. Okay. So Florida State's the other pick I think most pundits are going to pick right now. I think if you look at the remaining schedule, they're probably the pick to make to have it happen. Uh, I think if Oklahoma plays Florida State, I'm picking Oklahoma in that game. And that could be wrong. That UCF game doesn't look good. Texas, we felt like, was a contender. I just now it's different. All bets are off. I just feel like who's your quarterback, even if they have talented guys behind him. All yeah, bets it was are definitely off. a wild card pick, but I, I think they have more upside to me than Oklahoma. They do. That's why I think they were the ones that would this would have been my pick had 
Ewers not gotten hurt. No, he may they may survive and he comes back and it's right back in the saddle. But I just Texas being Texas sure. makes it's, me nervous. It's a to- I didn't feel good about anything, so I just went with no. It's great. The and most it, fun and, and I think for me, the reason I'm bumping Alabama out is my scenario was that LSU was going to win that division. Alabama was going to have one loss and they were going to to not have to play mm-hmm. Georgia, and that was feasible. I think the SEC has now removed themselves from a two team title. Yes, because Alabama will presumably not guaranteed. Win in the West, and they will lose to Georgia or be eliminated. If they beat Georgia, then that's back on, uh, which they certainly could beat Georgia. And that's the trick is like, do they both stay in? Is there enough from Georgia to merit playoff consideration? Not if Oklahoma goes undefeated, not if Oregon has one loss. I think Georgia would actually not be in because their schedule has been so weak. And the SEC is down overall. And the SEC is down. And so that's changed the narrative for me preseason-wise from the two SEC teams. So there are paths where that could happen. But I just think unless some of these other teams let the wheels fall off, which they might, it might be hard this year for the SEC to get to. All right. Last item here. Perhaps we should have put this at the front of the show, Alan. But you and I would love to go to the Florida-Georgia game. And somehow this season, unlike most seasons, we do not have tickets available. Mm. Now, we might be able to find some, but if you have a pair that is available and you're thinking, hey, you don't know what to do with said pair, Alan and I are available. There so you hit go. us up on social media or somewhere else. Let us know if you got something available. If not, no so worries. So this is where it should be, you know, right here. Then the loyal people listening. This is it. End. Like only the hardcore fans are at the end listening to this part. But yes, we would love to join you in Jacksonville for the Florida Georgia game. So let us know through any medium with which you prefer to contact us. All right, Alan, any other items from you? That's it. Let's close this thing down. Hopefully we're back here after a great Florida performance celebrating winning the cocktail party. Either way, we'll be back breaking it all down for you. Thanks, Gabe. We'll see you guys soon.